This episode of Recording Studio Rockstars is brought to you by OWC, Whisper Room, Eventide Audio, Spectra 1964, and Roswell Pro Audio. So get ready to rock. I talked to Matt Rossbring. I said, I'm going to build a prototype. Don't say anything to anybody. Really, it wasn't even known in the office. Built it in the garage and shipped it off to Memphis. One of the ugliest prototypes you'll ever see. In fact, I did it on purpose. It's, it's really ugly. And Matt was working with the drive-by truckers. He brought it into the studio and they, they laughed. What is that? Anyway, long story short, they plugged the guitar into it and never left the session. When they did their last album last year, they asked for it back. Welcome to Recording Studio Rockstars. I'm Lid Shaw, and this is the podcast created to help you become a rock star of the recording studio. This episode is sponsored by OWC, Otherworld Computing, which you can find at OWC.com, your trusted source for memory and speed upgrades, DIY installs, and used Macs for your studio. Let OWC focus on keeping your studio Mac in killer condition so that you can focus on making great music. Why ditch your existing Mac when you can take your studio far into the future with OWC? Learn more at OWC.com and learn how you can supercharge your studio Mac. The speed to create, the capacity to dream. Find out how awesome your Mac can be at OWC. The Spectra 1964-101 amplifier provides unequaled headroom, low noise, and a linear output, irrespective of transient audio peaks. In the studio, this means that critical details from your microphone get through to your DAW. The 101 was used by Tom Dowd, Muscle Shoals, Stack Studios, and The Record Plant on records by ZZ Top, Aerosmith, Bruce Springsteen, and John Lennon. Today, Spectra 1964 brings that same incredible sound to your studio with the STX-100 mic pre. Learn more at Spectra1964. What do Michael Brower, Joe Ciccarelli, Dave Pensato, and George Massenberg all have in common? They all have great things to say about Eventide. Originating in a New York City basement in 1971 with the original Instant Phaser and H910 Harmonizer, Eventide continues to transform the sound of music with the iconic H9000 Harmonizer, visionary guitar effects like the H9 pedal, and now a whole suite of incredible plugins for your studio. Go to eventide.com to learn more or click the link in the show notes below. If you're sick of bothering the neighbors when you are trying to record your music or ruining your recordings with outside noises, but you're not ready to spend a ton of money on permanent studio construction yet, then consider getting a Whisper Room ISO booth for your studio. Whisper Room offers the instant solution for a comfortable, quiet, ventilated, portable ISO booth with easy line of sight for recording vocals, guitar amps, or even drums. Get 10% off the 4x4 or 4x6 booth when you mention recording studio rock stars. Go to whisperroom.com or click the link in the show notes below. Hey, Rockstars, it's your host, Lid Sean. Welcome back to Recording Studio Rockstars, bringing you into the studio to learn from recording professionals so that you can make your best record ever and be a rock star of the studio yourself. My guest today is Bill Cheney, owner of Spectra 1964, originally Spectra Sonics, makers of the famous 101 mic preamps and the sound of Stax Records in Memphis. Spectra Sonics made consoles for studios like Arden in Memphis, the record plant in New York, and even Easy Eye Sound, Dan Auerbach's studio right here in Nashville, among others. You've heard Spectrasonics records 
by artists like Aerosmith, Bruce Springsteen, ZZ Top, Emerson Lake and Palmer, King Crimson, John Lennon, and more than you can possibly count. I first learned about Spectrosonics years ago working at my friend Brian Carter's studio, Paradox Productions, right here in Nashville, Tennessee, using his 610 comp limiter and never forgot how cool that sounded and looked in his control room. And when I spotted Bill and Spectra 1964 at the NAM conference uh, a couple of years ago, and I saw the amazing work that Bill was doing with Spectra 1964 by recreating the C610 and the V610 comp limiters and introducing the STX100 and STX500 mic preamps and EQ, I knew that I was going to need to learn more and bring it to you, rock stars. So I'm excited to invite Bill Cheney to the podcast today to learn what we can about the amazing history of Spectrosonics and now Spectra 1964, the studios that have made so many iconic records, the design philosophy behind old and new Spectrosonics, and what ways we can improve our sound in our studios and better understand things like peak limiting and signal chain. Please welcome Bill Cheney to Recording Studio Rockstars. Bill. Thank you for the invitation. Are you ready to rock? I am. Um, Speaking of which, I'm pretty sure that the sound that you are responsible for now is responsible for a lot of what we consider to be rock. That's correct. Yeah, there's a great deal of incredible records. I've just, you've been, you keep naming records I should check out. I'm like, no way, not that one. Well, unfortunately, uh, when I started working for Spectrosonics in the late 70s, uh, we were essentially done with the recording industry. We'd migrated into the sound reinforcement industry with our amplifiers and speakers. And so I wasn't really privy to what had happened prior to 1978-79. In fact, on my desk, there was a, a, gold, a gold record uh, that had been presented to, uh, to Spectrosonics from Atlantic. And uh, you had Cream's Disraeli Gears and all the Aretha Franklins and Vanilla Fudge and all these famous recordings. I never even bothered to look at the record until recently. Uh, a friend of mine acquired it and had no clue as to uh, uh, the history. So Disraeli Gears was done on, on uh, Spectrosonics yes. as well? Yes, wow. Tom Dowd. Yeah. There were uh, several uh, Cream albums uh, that were done uh, on that. And Tom was 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 tied into to Stax. Uh, that's how they got their original desk. And then uh, he had his own custom desk at uh, Atlantic, I believe, New York. And I still am working on what went through that studio. Uh, he had inverted faders. He, he, was an, he was a pilot, so he believed that increasing level was like a throttle on an aircraft. <laughs> and so he pulled the faders towards you. And there were two desks made by Phil Ailey, who was his engineer, and one ended up in Memphis, and then and then uh, uh, Tom ended up with the other one in New York. Pieces and parts of that desk still exist. But uh, back to the cream, I was even unaware that you know the numbers of of albums that were done again uh, with uh, the one hundred one five hundred combination, which was the combination of that era. So tell us more about um, what Spectrosonics is. You know, maybe give us a little bit of an introduction. Uh, but maybe before you do that, actually, give us an introduction to who you are and how'd you get into all well, this. Well, my introduction to Spectrosonics was quite by accident. I was working for a uh, a music company in uh, Salt Lake City, Broadway Music, and um, they were a dealer for Spectrosonics, which I had never heard of before. I was twenty one years old, and I was invited uh, to go to a seminar in the Ogden plant with uh, William Dilley. 
and um, went up there and proceeded to find out that my knowledge was basically uh, uh, incorrect of whatever I understood amplifier design was, loudspeaker design, etc. I spent two or three days uh, with Mr. Dilly uh, at his chalkboard, which he he routinely used in his office, and uh, basically was... uh, convinced rather easily that what he was doing and how he was doing was clearly superior to anybody else. So at this point, William Dilley was doing audio stuff, or this is where you guys... Well, Spectrosonics was started in 1964-65. Okay. And he started originally wanting to build modules. Uh, the 101, which we still build. Uh, the 500 EQ, power supplies, regulation, uh, things like that. And he was then uh, coaching people helping them design to build their own desks. He had no in, in, you know, inclination to even build a desk at that time. So that's where the AdVision console came from over in England, uh, the one that's you referenced uh, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, and yes. Uh, Strawberry Recorders in Paris, which uh, quite a few famous albums, Elton John, early works, came through that desk. They were all custom-built by qualified engineers and then assembled. Um, he didn't get into the desk business till. Well, 68, 69, uh, which started to be like record plant New York, uh, which Tom Hidley and him kind of partnered together on the design. And um, the console that followed that actually was the one that Dan Arbach owns, the the uh, Larrabee desk. But um, they weren't really producing desks. Right. They weren't really producing. Yeah, Larrabee. You're going to hear me scribbling away furiously <laughs> over here. There's just so much information but, coming through. It's amazing. But initially, it wasn't to be a desk manufacturer, but he had enough issues along the way that he decided, you know, Spectra would eventually start building desks. Uh, one of his other prolific builders was uh, Welton Jaton, Memphis origin. He built quite a few desks around our equipment and Bill's designs, and those were built in Memphis. So really, Bill was, um, and so William went by Bill as well. Bill, so, yeah. Yeah. But, uh, or Mr. But Dilly by everybody who Mr. worked Dilly. for him. Yes. Nice. Um, originally, he was really focused on building sort of the internals, the the, the essential, the heart of, of what becomes all these custom consoles. That's correct. The 101 Mike Pre. Right. He, he, he told me one day he would love, he liked going to his shows. In fact, the photograph uh, is on our website of he and, and Gene, his wife. He could put a one-on-one in his shirt pocket and go to a show. That was his his view of the world. And and uh, give him out like business cards. Right. <laughs> yeah. Interesting story. He was also the, the chief of engineering over the Minuteman missile LGM one. Yeah, I want to hear more of that too. Yeah, and and. I occasionally still hear stories from the old engineers that used to work with him where he'd show up with one of these amplifiers in his pocket, you know, for the, the test site. So so he's building, so the 101 amplifier is an amplifier circuit design that could be used for a microphone. It could be used as a line amp to sort yes, of sir. boost line level signals, but it can also be used as just part of the amplifier circuit in... Um, Control electronics is that why it would be used for missile silos? And no, kind of it, the, the, there's really no resemblance to what a one-on-one does and what he was doing, other than some of his practices, his design practices. But uh, he was exposed to voltage transfer, which is I don't want to get too deep on this, but it's essentially where you're not processing any current or power. And when a transistor's in that realm, it's a lot more stable. Uh, it doesn't have the frequency. Uh, issues as far as frequency response doesn't have uh, a lot of the anomalies that come with power matching 600 ohm to 600 ohm stuff he was 
And and I asked him one day, I said, where, where did this power or voltage transfer concept came from? And he said, the Germans used it in World War II in their missile systems for their high bandwidth amplifiers. And then because he was associated with missile design, naturally he was immersed into what voltage transfer was. And then he, you know, he used that in his design of his audio amplifiers. Interesting. So when you talk about not, tra- again, we don't want to get too deep in the geek, right. but, but we do actually really kind of love this stuff too. Mm-hmm. Um, the the concept of not transferring too much power um, basically is kind of the equivalent of saying we're not running too many electrons through the 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 chip potentially. Well, it's right? current. It's power. Current, yeah. Yeah, and the only time you need power is on, on the speaker end. Yeah. You don't need power, you know, and that's, uh, when I first started, I remember hearing him comment that our, our consoles don't heat the control room, and which meant that they didn't generate any, you know, heat from the design. Yeah. And you can touch any of our gear, even our old Spectra desks that are ice cold. Well, They're I noticed when cold. you brought the uh, 610 comp limiter into the studio here, it's very light too. It's just, right. it's, it's, it is kind of the opposite of that, that idea that things need to be super heavy to sound good, which is probably well, the, has a lot to do with hand managing power as well. Right? That came from the tube era, you know, impedance matching, um, power transfer. And again, when you're trying to transfer current at a mic level or line level, uh, only bad things can happen. Right, right. Um, however, having said that, you know, sometimes people like the distortion that that technology provides. So sure. it's, I'm not saying you don't use it. I'm just saying that it, if you're trying to replicate or reproduce the original input signal at the output, you don't want to use power transfer. And there was quite a, you know, I read some of the early articles when they weren't agreeing with Bill Dilley and Spectrosonics. And they're always doing this impedance matching, 600 ohm to 600 ohm. And he's he's at the other end of the scale saying we should go, you know, 10 times the source impedance, which means at higher higher values. All right. And so that was, a you know, and then finally, you know, 75, 78, everybody, the light went on. And they started to use voltage transfer. So now everybody now uses voltage transfer right, okay. as a design parameter. Okay, cool. Um, so, you know, for... Maybe for the rock stars to just understand some concepts, um, you talked about not needing power until the speakers. At the at that point, you literally have to physically move some speakers, so you need some power to do that. Everything before that is just trying to create a great-looking waveform to send to the speakers. That's Maybe correct. that's one way to think of it. And if you do need a high output level like plus 24, you know, let's say DBM, 600-ohm termination, you know, our devices will do it. They don't care about that. You, you know what I love about that is I don't even necessarily know what that means, but it just sounds cool when you say it. Well, it just means that in, in the digital world, they've adopted higher levels than the old VU world, the old tape machine world at plus four. Yeah. And when I was introduced into this world, it was plus four. Right. And because of the another discussions, the idiosyncrasies of digital, they deal with higher levels. And uh, when you do that, you have less stability in your analog gear. And yeah, yeah. we do both well. We don't care. It's plus four, plus twenty-four. It's right on. Uh, uh, we don't discriminate. So uh, one way for us to understand what you're saying is that what you design at Spectrosonics can handle just about any level we're dealing any with. Any level. Okay, cool. All right. Well, let's um, let's you know let's understand a little bit about um, Bill Dilley and Spectrosonics. You know, the early one-on-one design that was that was at the core of consoles that were making all kinds of classic albums and, and different classic studios. And then, um, when did the 610 comp limiter come along? Was that sort of like next in the, in well, the chain? Well, the, the 610 bit? was introduced in 1969. And 
I have the original, which they called reference to 600. I have those boards. And that box was essentially, or that design was essentially a, a, a hot redded LA3, you know, something that was exceptionally fast and quiet and clean. And it never really was introduced. And I found all the old notes and I found a lot of the, you know, the reasoning why they were developing it around that concept. And, and then between 68 and 69, the light went on somewhere between his engineers, like Bob Pono and, and Bill. They looked at the peak as totally a separate function from the compressor. And so that's where the advent of the 610 came from, where we process the peaks independently of the compression. Is that sort of why we call it a comp limiter? Right. It's two different Two different processes. devices where a, a conventional compressor limiter uh, will compress based on the transient, the peak, the average level. Our device eliminates the peak, and the compressor then functions in its own peak-free environment. All right, so let's let's break that, that down a little more because it's pretty fascinating to me, and I want to make sure everybody understands it. You know, you've got a signal that comes from some instrument. Um, if you take something that's easy to, to visualize, like a drum, obviously you have a big spike when there's a hit on the drum, but then there's also a tone to the drum that's happening. And one way we might think about it is that that, that initial hit, that transient, um, is the peak, is where the peaks come from, right? And then the, the sort of the body of the sound is where the um, RMS or, or the level is of the sound. And you're, you're designing stuff that will address that peak such that it doesn't sort of mess up what we can do to the, the body of the sound? That's correct. And this is where the confusion comes in. Um, because a lot of our, our fellow manufacturers are actually peak limiting within the audio bandpass. When you have a peak that's modulating the compressor, that's where we get pumping. Uh, the other issue is, is the peaks by definition, and this was the first day lecture I got from Mr. Dilly was, we're talking stuff that's approaching megacycle range and above, and it's just voltage. It has nothing to do with the music program. Let me add a, something that I think I understand about that. A, um, the transient, if you, if you picture a, a signal as sort of going up and down, you picture a sine wave, sort of a classic. Um, the transient is as if you, you start from zero and you just simply go straight up, right? That's correct. And, and that is that initial attack. You, you see that on a square wave. You see that on a, something hitting the drum or something like that. And the the closer it is to straight up and down, the more that represents all harmonics from almost nothing, from zero to light or something like that is one way to put well, it's it. Well, right? it's essentially almost DC voltage. I mean, there's no musical program at 500 kilohertz. But that is sort of another way of thinking about that, Rockstars, is that transient has elements to it that need to be respected all the way to the lowest lows to the highest highs. And that's why you're talking about being able to handle and process the signal well above the audio range, right? And then a kick, let's give an example. A kick drum or snare will produce 20 dB peaks. That means where your VU meter is living, you have peaks that are 20 dB above that, which is devastating because... And the, and the overload that occurs because of the peak is not really definable because of how the circuit's designed. And so everybody's accepted this thing, well, you give yourself at least 10 or 15 dB of headroom when you're tracking drums because of what you can't see. 
Right. The idea is that there's a peak in there that happens really quickly. And as long as you got plenty of room up above, hopefully we won't mess it up. That's, that's the thinking, right? And that's why you see these recordings where the VU barely, barely deflects when the transients occur. Now, uh, And we also know as engineers and musicians, we, like, we don't like that. We want to we bury the needles. It's just right. a good feeling. It's your dynamic, well, it's your dynamic range. It's the presence. It's the music. It's what you feel. It's like when we review some of the recordings that were done, early recordings on Spectre, you'll notice they all have something that's consistent with one another. Full harmonics, full, you, know, you can hear all the background vocals, you can hear everything that's in the, in the recording. It's not at all lost because of overload. One thing you can try at home, and this will shock you, get a, get a set of car keys. Uh, Mark Neal showed me this one day with our amplifiers. But you get a set of car keys and put it in front of a good condenser microphone and see if you can record those car keys. You can't. Just the sound of them jingling or dropping them or something No, like just that? jangling them in front of a microphone. You'll be lucky to get minus 20 out of your desk, and you'll hear audible distortion. Really? So you're saying that the the transient sound of those, just the metal hitting each other is so, it's got such a, such a spike that you have to turn your levels way, way, way down right. to record it? That's why, yes. That's why cymbals and, you know, you get a lot of tambourine. You, it's hard to reproduce yep. those because yep. the transient peaks that come off that, there's really no RMS voltage to speak of with those recordings, but you get into an issue where you have 20, 30 dB peaks that are coming off that device. That's also why I started learning when I would go out and play tambourine myself is don't like bang it against my hand, you know, be real That's gentle correct. and get really small with it and you start to get a right tone. But but it also bugged me a little bit. Somehow it didn't sound like rocking out like when, you know. Well, that it's, and it's not what somebody would really do if they were banging a tambourine right next to a drummer playing. They'd be hitting it hard, you know. That's correct. And, and so anytime you have these anomalies that occur that occur with the transient toms, snare, kick. Um, they're going to be they're going to require you to either turn it down into the noise floor in less dynamic range, or you just have to deal with the distortion. Now, some folks even take it to tape because tape can't reproduce a peak; it just smears on the, on the tape itself. It just overdrives right, the tape, right. and so that was a, a concept for a long time. We'll just run it to tape. Well, it's just a band aid. Yeah, and and so you're get picking up one percent distortion or whatever that tape machine's going to do to you. The noise of the tape machine, uh, the loss of harmonics, things like that, just to get away from the peaks. Now, if you take one of our desks, like the one Dan Arbeck owns, the little Airby desk, you take a kick and snare through that desk, and you put it an oscilloscope on that desk on the output. That desk will produce twenty to thirty dB peaks, and not distort. It just won't clip. And you'll be reading the RMS levels correctly on the VU meters. There's no peak lights on that desk because all of our gear has never worried about peaks. But I've taken, Matt Rosbang owns a, 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 a Autotronics version of a Spectra. He sent me some tracks, kick and snare. 22 to 25 is what I was measuring. Those are the peaks? Right. And so... How is he recording those? Well, how, what, how how would he have recorded those to send that to you so that you can see and measure that? Well, he was just using recording? it. Uh, just uh, he had it on a DAW, which kind of surprised me. But this is where some confusion comes in about our gear. Our mic pre's reproduce the peaks. Our limiters get rid of the peaks. Right. Okay. So at some point, you're going to have to deal with that peak if your console. Right. Put it out, yeah. or even our 500 series puts out that peak. Well, I mean, let's let's just be honest. I mean, we probably need to deal with the peak before you can play it back on anything that we're used to listening to music on, right? Because exactly, otherwise, that the 
the very music that we'd be playing back would have to be so quiet to leave the headroom for the 20 to 30 dB. That's clear. I did a mic shootout for my vocals in the studio and tried 20 different microphones from the Shure SM7 to a vintage Neumann U67, but was impressed that my favorite of all was the Roswell Pro Audio Delphos 2 large diaphragm condenser. Handcrafted in California, Roswell Mics brings you inspired design and attention to detail to help you capture a gorgeous vintage sound without the vintage price tag. Check out their beautiful microphones, including the Mini K47 for only $349 at Roswell Pro audio.com so so again i want to i want to keep clarifying because i'm i'm learning to understand this as you're explaining it too it's the it's the careful capturing of the peaks making sure we're not screwing up the peaks so that we can manage them in the right way which is where the 610 limiter comes in right so it's correct like the mic pre I, I guess one thing we didn't mention about uh, you know for example the new stx 100 is that you have an input and an output knob so the input you can set it to, um, and you advised me to set it to where the the red light is just just you're just flickering that red light on peaks, and then you know that you're in the input ballpark, and then you just simply take the output of the mic pre and bring it down so that it's not so that the peaks aren't too hot for your Pro Tools input or whatever. Yeah, it is, that's right? that's correct, and and that and there's some been some misunderstandings about the STX100 because it does use our 110A amplifier in it, but it's pretty pretty close to what they built in 1974-75 it was a it was called a 1024 desk but the gain structure sent up the same way as that early desk and so what we're always trying to do is maximize the levels at the input you don't want to take your master up first and then your input down and this goes with anybody's consoles anybody's recording gear the first stage is your dynamic range it is your signal and noise ratio and in some cases some of even your distortion uh and you've always got to maximize that input level. Now, the problem comes in is the peak lights are on most devices are so slow, you're getting peak overload and don't even realize until you play it back. Well, it's different. It's, it's kind of the opposite of what we think of when we think of guitar amps. When, when you say, hey, Bill, get a clean sound. You're like, oh, if I want to get a clean sound, I better turn up the master output first and then start bringing up the gain slowly. Let me tell you why. Right. Well, a bass guitar, we measure bass guitars in the, in, the, in the lab, 20 to 25 dB bass, okay? is That's your peak to average on a bass guitar, especially the fundamental. If you do some simple math, let's just use 20 dB. That is 10 to the second power of 100 times. So if you have a 100-watt bass guitar amplifier with 20 dB peaks, the question is, what is the usable amplifier power what do I have to turn it down to to where it won't distort? And the answer is one watt. That's which is pretty astounding. One watt. Meaning, so how how do we take that? Well, we it take, sounds uh, great when you tell a story, but how, what do we do with that? So that means that's the equivalent of telling us you can't set your amp right, or you can set your amp right. Well, what you do is you use a. We originally came out with a six eleven, but you take our limiters with a good DI, and you strip the peak off, no compression. Your bass guitar amp now sounds like a bass guitar amp. You'll hear the fundamental. I have recording folks that are the big time guys call me and say, I've never heard it before. My box sounds entirely different. Right. It's moving my pant leg. I mean, I'm getting those kind of comments. Uh, one band had to retrack all of the bass guitar tracks after they got their 611. It's because you're never, ever hearing it because of the overload in the amplifier. Yeah. Okay. I think I'm understanding now. So the thing about peaks in your sound is 
they are a problem in that you need to you need to get them out of the way so you can start bringing up the level of the body of the sound. It's that it's that backwards thinking about compression that we when we get it we're like, "Oh, I get it. You're compressing things so that you can actually make them louder." That's you know, correct. so you can bring up the sound. But the but the the oversight that happens is so many things that we might have used previously um, to the Spectra 1964 stuff is is uh, is mismanaging those peaks. It's it's destroying the peaks rather than somehow handling them. In well, the you're right not, way. not necessarily destroying the peaks, and this is one mistake I made early on. I thought in a conventional world, um, peak overload occurred in the first stage, and then there was no more. The, the peaks were gone because you lost them in overload. Well, that's not true. Uh, in fact, in a, a, a session. Years ago with Dave Cobb, we put him in the two bus, a pair of six tens, and you could you could all of a sudden the mix, you could move it forward and backward without headroom or clipping, which told me that I misunderstood the whole peak overload issue in a conventional desk. Meaning you can peak limit anywhere in that gain stage, in the mix, so it's doing damage the whole time. Well, I can I can see that. So I can see you've got big huge peaks when you come in with an individual sound um, and then when we take a whole bunch of, you know, music together and we start mixing it, we're basically trying to bring up those peaks even more to the foreground. We keep we keep doing that until we've, you know, until we hit the loudness wars and we got too loud. But uh, at the mix stage, I could see how we've still got peaks where we're like, you know what, we still need the body of this mix to come forward. That's right. And we and our peaks need to look a whole lot smaller now than they did before. And all we're doing is we're not we're just allowing you to do things that you want to do. It's like one of the mastering engineers told me, in fact, more than one mastering engineer, with our V610, they said, now I can be a, a, an artist. Because before they were monitoring the peak to average ratio, what it was going to do to the master, what it was going to do to the even the lathe eventually. Uh, and so what happens is when you strip that peak off, all of a sudden you're just dealing with the VU meter. You don't have to worry about things you can't see. It's, I've been told this again. When they do tracking sessions with our pre's, specifically, you know, drums, they're out a day ahead of time because they already know what they're going to get and at what levels they're yeah. going to get them. That's yeah. such a huge thing. If you can get the sounds right when you're recording, boy, does it speed up the the record making process. When you when you just sort of take the attitude that says we're just going to leave tons of headroom and not do anything to a sound on the way in because we'll do it all later with plugins and a mix, that's when it starts to take forever to. Finally, you know, trying to figure out, like, how come I can't get this thing to sound right to me? And once it's lost, it's lost. And, and I just want to review one thing real quickly, which I may not have stated clearly. When an amplif a conventional amplifier overloads from peaks, and again, it depends on the design of the circuit that, you know, we're talking about, what mic pre you're using, whether it's class A, class AB, and so on, there's a given period of time when that power supply tries to reproduce that peak. Well, it's asking for a 20 dB worth of power to reproduce the peak. When that occurs, the power supply will drop. It'll let down. The time it takes for that power supply to recover from that overload, those are your harmonics. And so what happens is any number of things can happen. The equalization can change because depending on what the peak does, the circuit's not going to be linear anymore. It's, it's, there's going to be a period of time when the circuit's not linear. There's also going to be a period of time when you're just not reproducing the full harmonics. And so when people hear our, our pre's and our limiters, you know, the, the thing I do as a standard, I'll take a C610, plug an SM57 into and go to a snare, right into the DAW. And I'll, the first thing I'll tell the engineer is take it higher than you would ever take it. 
So wait, we're talking about taking a microphone straight into the 610 comp limiter, skip the mic pre entirely and go straight into a DAW? Very common. Wow. Very common use. Very common use. So it, it has gain, it has enough gain in there to start to give us a sound. 60 dB, more than 60. In fact, there's a lot of a lot of productions that you hear on every day. There was a 610 mic, U87, right through a 610. And I can't tell you specifically who it is because they don't want to know, but it's very common. But again, if you eliminate that peak as a mic pre, and, and we've won mic pre competitions with our 610s. Well, I remember uh, Matt Rosbank has a great video on the Spectrum 1964 website where he explains how he uses them in, in his studio. He's he, Matt, who's been a guest on the show before. Hi, Matt. He um, he ha- has basically helped re- revive um, Sam Phillips' recording. You know, he started out at Sun and everything, so he's done some pretty amazing things in Memphis. But he was talking about using the 610. You can use it before the pre. You can use it after after the pre, and that caught my ear. And I was like, what? You're putting a compressor before the mic pre? So it's really interesting to hear you talk about this stuff and help us rethink this. And a lot of cases, it's being used as a limiter only. Okay, it's not. And if the compression's there, because our compressors stay, you know, their their frequency response stays the same. It doesn't care if you're 100 to 1 or 10 to 1. It's So you're not really aware that our compressor's functioning because it's inaudible. As right, far it doesn't as, do the pumping thing. It doesn't do the to. pumping and, and it does have a de-essing circuit. It does have all the anomalies that a standard compressor would have. So it's like a guy with a real fast volume control. And But the thing that happens though is is by eliminating that peak and lo- and gaining those harmonics and where I was going with the drum comment with the, the 57 into the DAW, it sounds like you're in the drum booth. And that's the first thing that hit Matt was when he got 610s, he says, it sounds like I'm standing next to the drum. Well, uh, we weren't creating any kind of signature or artifact or anything. We were just reproducing the waveform. That's all we're doing. Yeah. Well, I think about what the human ear does. You know, you go stand next to a drum. Obviously, if somebody hits it too loud, you go you go stand back. Right. That's correct. And, um, you know, often we learn that's probably what we should do with our mics too. But um, But when you stand next to a drum and you hit it, I think the human ear has its own version of, uh, peak limiting, and then it allows. I don't know why our recover, you know, what our recovery looks like, but you know, we're able to still hear what the drum sounds like on a certain level. Um, and it's interesting to think that the, uh, you know, it's that reminder that a microphone is not a human ear. Keep remembering that, rock stars. Microphone is not a human ear. That's why we have to. It it can't. It, it needs a little help. I think that's one way to put it. Yeah, yeah, Fletcher Munson, Fletcher Munson effect and things like that that would yeah. affect the ear. But again, it's but when you going even further, you hear the harmonics, but you also hear the attack. You hear that really fast transient attack, which a class A amplifier tries to mimic. Doesn't always do it, but let's just clarify that too. So the attack, like if it's the snare hit, the very first thing that happens is the stick touching the drum right. and the the drum head starts to move a little bit. And then there's this big ass transient that happens, right. and that's the thing that gets lost, lost or screwed up or whatever. And then there's the body of the drum, and the things that we really like are the stick hitting the drum and the body of the drum, and we need to manage the transient. Right, and that and that's what all of a sudden become you become aware of that. And like you say, the cleanest way to demonstrate that is a 57 into a a 610 into a DAW. The other thing you'll notice is your DAW will be yelling red, and you won't hear any distortion. Or if you're really overdrive, you might hear some distortion. But if you can pick up 10, 15, 20 dB of headroom because the peak's gone, the DAW, the A to D converter is not going to overload. 
Yeah. Which is what you're always wild. fighting is the A to D converters. For specifically, the analog converter has the first or, first problem. Well, let's talk about what the controls are on the face of the 610. Now we have the C610 and the V610, right? Right. And the 611, which is was originally designed as a guitar uh, peak limiter, compressor limiter. Uh, and the, the 611 is a much smaller box here. It looks like an oversized DI. Right. And the 611 is the 610 and the V610 without makeup gain. And so a few years ago, we were looking at, again, the bass guitar players and the guitar players, and, and we wanted to come up with a box that was affordable, uh, gave you peak limiting and compression, but then we could use it as a mic pre-pre, so it goes in front of the mic. So the 611 goes in front of the mic? Goes in front, in front of the, of the mic free, yeah. And so we can take, and I don't want to disparage any competitors, but we can take uh, competitor A, and we can uh, barely deflect the meter and, and with pads and barely, without audible distortion, uh, do a drum session. Mm-hmm. We put the 611 in front of it, or a 610. You can now bury the meter with no audible distortion. And all we've done is taken the peaks out of the program. And that's what happened with this product was, Got a call one day from a guy because it was originally had six dB increment pads for bass guitar setup. Then you dialed it in with your guitar. Uh, he was using it as a mic pre, and I said, "Well, it's you can't dial in the threshold on the limiter properly." He goes, "Well, it, I don't care. It's so much better than not that uh, that's you know that's how we're using it." And um, that's what caused us to change the design to a thirty-two position detent, so it can be used as a mic pre. And a lot of people use them as mic pre's. Or they plug their guitar into it, or, or, or even keyboards. But um, the, the big thing is again, the limiter gets just strips the peak off and uh, allows you to do it. Now, if we go into the actual setup of the box, uh, and I have a video out that's getting to be a few. And years the six six eleven is a powered box, so yes, it's some yeah. plug in twenty dB again yeah. in limiting mode. Um, um, it's one of the things you know when I listen to all the records that Alan Parker brought over um, from Easy Eye Sound. I'm listening to those. I'm like, boy, everything just sounds like it's like if it wants to be, if it's the drums or something, it just sounds like it's right up in your face. And I feel like that's the quality that you get when you start handling the peaks and bringing the level up. What you said about like kind of burying the needle and not hearing distortion. It's like you're just moving that instrument up closer to you where you you don't always want every instrument to be close to you in a mix, but the ones you do, those are the ones we struggle with getting forward. Well, that's that's where you can listen to one album, and that's where vinyl's popular now. It's because the impact you can feel, you can feel the emotion, you can feel the impact with the musicians trying to convey. That's lost if you're down on the noise floor and you're you're down 10, 12, 15 dB. You're never going to have that impact. You're, it's not going to get in your face. It doesn't yeah, I, feel. I agree. It, it just you just don't have it, and that's why they sound dead. They sound flat. Uh, you can see it on the VU meter. There's hardly any deflection at all. Where we're living, we're like 10, 12 dB above that. And that is, again, that's huge with the way something sounds. Now, are you a record maker yourself? Have you have you been a uh, musician or done engineering? No. or is, So you, so how'd you get, like, why do you care about all this? Why well, do you I, love, I remember You sound I, like somebody who loves this audio stuff. Well, I remember in high, well, I was building amplifiers and speakers in high school. And, um, and ironically, the albums that I preferred were, and I didn't know this, done on Spectra. Emerson Lake and Palmer, Brain Salad Surgery, Elton John, you know, Chateau. That was one of my first favorites, yeah. too. I had the album with the, the fold-out cover. Right, great cover. Uh, the early um, ZZ Top, the uh, 
Oh. Didn't you say Yes Fragile was yes, done Fragile with it? Yes Fragile was amazing. done with it. Listen to the drums. Listen to the background harmon- uh, background harmony. Listen to all that. It's all there. Yeah. Uh, I would I'll, almost describe that sound as, I remember listening to him like, it sounds, it kind of sounds clean, but distorted, but clean. Some, right. Something like that. I, I don't know how else to explain it. It's, it's not like overdrive, but everything's cr- a li- just the right amount of crunchiness right up in your face. Yeah. Well, the ZZ Top is the, is the one that uses the crunchiness because uh, how that guitar sounds so fat, the Gibbons guitar sounds so fat, is it's an overdriven Spectra mic pre. Our mic pre's don't distort like it. Like direct, no amp? Or is it not, an amp maybe? I'm not maybe. sure how they were doing I just know, yeah. and Roy Sakalas told me this several times at Record Plant, they would intentionally come out of the output of one Back into the input, the other, and overdrive. Uh, yeah. Overdrive the one on one. Well, our gear doesn't clip like a transistor. It clips like a tube, so it's rounded. It's full, and all the harmonics there. Well, you get a conventional transistor, and it's crunchy. It's ugly. Oh yeah. And so that's when you listen to those Gibbons guitars. That real fat, thick. The drums on those recordings. It's it just has an. But that's overdriven. And in fact, a prior mentioned engineer, Matt. He will take our pre's and just put a little bit, of, he'll just overdrive them slightly just to get a little bit of edge, a little bit of grit, but it's not ugly. It's, it's, yeah. it's full. Yeah. Um, very cool. Very cool. Now, what about um, people, are you having conversations with people who are coming kind of from the modern production world, people who love the sound of music made on laptops and 808 drums and things like that? I mean, I'm not sure what that exact uh, example is, but... Are you are you hearing from people in the kind of the hip hop and and electronic music world who are somehow using this stuff too, or is this is this more for us old school? You know, we want to record real instruments. They're coming full circle because they're starting to realize what they're doing is pretty one dimensional, pretty repetitive, pretty. Again, you're not you're not really separating great artists from good artists. You're you're just kind of just doing the same thing over and over again, and so a lot, and specifically the younger folks I talk to. This like an awakening. Uh, right. I, I, I talked to, a, again, a, a musician, well-known band, famous. And I said, because he was buying our gear. He's out of the UK. And I said, well, where did you find out about it? He said, I started listening to Stax. Right on. He said, I started listening to Stax and I heard things I'd never heard before. You know, and we're talking about a 12-channel disc with no EQ. You know, initially. Um, so Rockstars, as usual, I put together a YouTube playlist full of stuff to go check out. Um, a lot of it is from the record plant in New York and um, uh, is, are going to be some records done on Spectrosonics. Um, also stuff from Stax. Um, and it's a little tricky to know exactly which albums might have been done on the board, but I think we're. I think you, you, it's a good bet a lot of the stuff was there. Uh, we, we know certain, con- certain records were done through Spectrosonics, like you mentioned, Brain Salad Surgery and uh, some of the Bruce Springsteen. All, all, of, the, all of the early Aerosmith. Yeah, uh, John Lennon, Imagine, that record plant. All of all of John Lennon's, as far as I can tell right now, I'm not sure he did not. That's all he used. In fact, the night he was killed, he was coming out of record plant. Wow. Yeah, and I think Steve Mark Antonio told us that story. Right, but he used podcast here when he did his album in uh, in L.A. Record plant, you know, Sausalito. Still, he still used Spectra desks. So one of the points I was going to make is, uh, if there's anything that wasn't done through Spectra, it's still pretty awesome. You'll be glad you got a chance to listen to. Well, it. you can tell typically because that's what I'll do. I mean, there's a few albums that were done on Spectra that I think are terrible. Right, but they still say, sound great. I, 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 yeah, they're okay. But I'm just saying they were overdriven. That was just 
operator right, error. Right, right. So I'm not going to sit there and go automatically, you buy our gear, you're going to be a winner. But uh, but you'll notice when you, like the James Gang, we were talking about James Gang yeah. recording at Record Plant. <laughs> so I think that was one of the first recordings that Roy Sakala did on the desk. And just so there's no confusion, the the um, Jimi Hendrix from six months earlier was not done on our desk. It was done. Oh, on Electric Ladyland. Right. It was done. Okay, on Okay, that, that was one done, might be in the YouTube playlist, but yeah, go, it was done. Go on, it, yeah, it was so done on a data mix, which uh, was uh, Studio C. But after between '69 and say '80 '85, much most everything that went through that had any kind of of uh, recognition to be done on that. That ten twenty. That, yeah. uh, well, I know James Gang sounds yeah. so awesome. Yeah. Well, it's it, the other thing was uh, that studio, the studio A record plant was. It was a thirty channel desk, and and this was the first time in the notes. I've got all the notes from a lot of these early designs. I got uh, most of Bill's engineering notes and Tom Hidley. We up to that point we'd had a a two channel five hundred EQ, which was the brain salad surgery, the yes two band. Which is, you know, we're now producing on our 500 series, but he wanted a, a notice in the notes, a three band, which was the first 502. And that's the one that Easy Eye has. It's, okay, Because that desk basically followed Record Plant. So it, there's maybe two copies of that particular configuration in existence because it was 101s with 502 three band EQs. You said that was the Larrabee console? The Larrabee desk. Yeah, and Larrabee so desk. Th- that desk, I think all of Cher's work did, went through that. Um, all of Cher? Mm-hmm. All of the... So uh, Sonny may have sang through that absolutely. as well? Absolutely. Right. The late Sonny. Uh, Hall & Oates. When you hear some of the drum tracks come through Hall & Oates, some of those are pretty big. And that was that Larrabee desk. Interesting. Wow. Um, well, very cool. Um, well, let's take a break now for a moment. We'll come back in for the jam session. And uh, Rockstar's a reminder, please click through on the show notes. Go check out Spectra 1964. Um, we've got links over to the YouTube playlist. You can go check out some really awesome music and remember just how good things sound. And we'll see you guys in just a minute for the jam session. Cheers. The Spectra 1964 model was created by the missile engineers who are central in rolling out the systems that have protected the free world for over half a century. The extremely stable high circuit design of the 101 amplifier provides unequaled headroom, low noise, and linear output, irrespective of transient audio peaks, giving you clearer, punchier, dynamic recordings. During the height of record making, the 101 preamp was the perfect choice to build consoles for Tom Dowd, Muscle Shoals, Stack Studios, Ardent Studios, and New York City record plant, bringing you the sounds of ZZ Top, Aerosmith, Bruce Springsteen, King Crimson, John Lennon, and so many more. The Spectra 1964 legacy is carried on today through Bill Cheney and Jim Romney. Now you can get that same sound in your studio with the STX100 Mic Pre and STX500 EQ. Add the Cinemag Transformer BBDI and the C610 Complimeter, and you can have a truly awesome sound. Go to Spectra1964.com to learn more or click the link in the show notes below. Are you using a Mac in your recording studio? Are you tired of feeling like the studio setup you worked so hard to create is becoming obsolete too quickly? Wouldn't it feel great to have a trusted friend to help you keep your existing Mac and studio setup current and relevant so that you can focus on the thing you love most, which is making great music? Well, now you can rely on OWC, Otherworld Computing, which you can find at OWC.com, whose mission it is to help you get the most mileage out of your Mac. Whether you need to upgrade your RAM, install an SSD, add more connectivity, or simply find a great used Mac that's ready to rock, OWC will help take your studio 
studio far into the future with a vast library of DIY install videos, 24-7 friendly support, and free shipping in the U.S. on most items over $49. Why get frustrated and ditch your existing computer when you can take your studio far into the future with OWC? Learn more at OWC.com and find out how awesome your Mac can be at OWC. It was 1971 in a New York City basement when Eventide revolutionized the audio world by introducing the world's first studio effects processor, the Instant Phaser, and the first digital effect, the H910 Harmonizer. Eventide soon followed with the Instant Flanger, Omnipressor, SP2016 Reverb, and H949 and H3000 Harmonizers, which have been favorites of A-list mixers like Michael Brower, Joe Ciccarelli, Mick Kozowski, and Dave and heard on countless hit records over the decades. Today, Eventide brings all that sound to your stage and studio with modern solutions like the H9000 Harmonizer, their complete line of guitar pedals, including the versatile H9 Max, and transformative plugins like Micropitch, Physion, Black Hole, and Mangled Reverb. Take your next mix in your studio to a whole new level. Go to eventide.com or click the link in the show notes below. Are you sick of bothering family and neighbors when you're just trying to rehearse or record your music? Do outside noises or computer fans get into your studio mics and ruin your recordings? You could book a pro studio to record every time, but that would add up quickly, and doing permanent construction to soundproof your studio can easily cost up to $100,000 or more. Trust me, I know. And you can't take that with you when you eventually move the studio. Don't you wish it was an easy solution right now? Whisperoom Isobooths offers a simple way to install a comfortable, quiet, ventilated ISO booth in your studio with easy line of sight for recording vocals, guitar amps, or even drums in a variety of sizes. For 30 years, Whisperoom has been solving studio isolation needs worldwide with ISO booths that are shippable, portable, and can be assembled in an afternoon. Now you can get pro vocal recordings right in your home studio, practice whenever you want, and start using real guitar amps again. Get 10% off the 4x4 or 4x6 booths when you mention Recording Studio Rockstars at whisperroom.com or click the link in the show notes below. Hey, Rockstars, we're back now for the jam session. My guest today is Bill Cheney joining us from Spectra 1964. Bill, you ready to jam? Yes, sir. All right, dude. So um, you aren't doing Spectra 1964 just by yourself. There's more people there. Tell us about the company and, and who your partner is? Well, my partner is Jim Romney, and he basically makes all the products a reality. I mean, uh, yeah, I'm involved with a lot of the prototype design and a lot of concept stuff, but that's all well and good. But to put it together where it's not only clean, easy to repair, and reliable is a whole different level that we, we worry about. Because uh, if you would understand working for Bill Dilley, failure was not a, a real option. Things right, shouldn't right. fail. And in the in the missile world, MTBF, and meantime, between failure was, that was number one on the page. So when I go through the old Spectra notes, they used to curve every transistor's temperature, stability, what room temperature, what would kind of rise, things that the audio world has never even considered because he treated it like a missile circuit, even though it wasn't. Right, so, it needs to be reliable. Right, and so Jim, you know, my partner Jim, who's been with us from day one, he uh, he understood Bill's thinking, 
any implements. And that was always a common question we bought the company because there was a lot of pressure on us. What would Bill do? Would Bill approve of this? Uh, does it meet spec? Like it took us two years to get a 610 to meet spec after we bought the company. Wow. So, but Jim makes it happen. And without that, uh, you can have all the pipe dreams you want in the world, but you're not going to. Not going to get there now. When did you guys buy the company? When did you guys decide let's let's make this thing happen? Right in the middle of the economic crash, oh seven oh eight. What to to oh oh seven oh eight? Yeah, right in the middle. And uh, our other business, which uh, was doing okay, um, basically had to carry carry the ball for quite a few years because not only did we have that issue, but a lot of people thought that Spectre had gone out of business, even though it really never shut down. You could always get them to support things and buy things. They hadn't advertised since 95. Right. And so there was that, you know, starting that out again. And then another funny, interesting story was we were just going to do six tens. That was it. And that was not going to be a really expensive, you know, thing we could do. And I received a phone call one day. Uh, lad on the other line goes, uh, hi, this is Roy Sakala. And I said, okay. He says, do you know who I am? I said, no. He says, C-I-C-L-A, Sakala. I'll call you back in 10 minutes. Calls back in 10 minutes. I then looked up who Roy Sakala was, not realizing he was he was the guy in recording forever. And he calls back. He's calling from Brazil. And he said, uh, do you know who I am now? And I said, yeah. I and I apologize profusely because I had no clue who this guy is. But he says, you got to build Mike Prees again. And I said, well, we're not going to. A, we can't afford it. B, the market's saturated. He says, no, no, no. You got to build Mike Prees again. He says, I keep trying to repair and I won't list the console. He says, the transistors are now 150 to 200 bucks a piece and your stuff is way above what that thing will ever hope to be. You got to build Mike Prees. I said, no, we can't do it. He did that. He called me every week for six months. Finally, I said, okay. And we, that's where we came out with the M502, which is two channel strips out of the record plant desk. And so that's how we got sucked into Mike Prees was, was Roy and his just tenacity. He would not. And every time we had a, hit a problem with someone giving us a, a recommendation or a quote, Roy would get on the phone, take care of that. So he was always breaking down uh, barriers that we had issues with. So without Roy's help, uh, unfortunately he passed in 2012, Without Roy, and then his continual, come on, guys, you can do it, you can do it, kind of coaching. And then when we'd build prototypes, we'd ship them to Brazil. He'd call, say, we're close. But his ears were good enough that he knew when we were there or not there in a couple of areas. And he was right on. Wow. And then he had people like, you know, Messina, Jay, who worked for him, a record plant. And these guys listened to our desk, and they say, this is wrong, that's wrong. But when we got done with the circuit, it was record plant. And we could even get... Um, uh, David Hewitt, um, well-known engineer, he picked our mic pre out of a room and didn't even know what he was listening to. He says, that's Studio A. What are you using? That's, yeah, that's how. That's David who did the remote truck for record. Right. Play, right? Yeah. He's been on the podcast. And his son's well. quite well-known. Yep. And, that's uh, Ryan, Rockstar. Ryan, <laughs> Ryan Hewitt. But he picked it out without knowing where it was in the rack. He just says, that's Studio A. And I heard that comment over and over again. The guys were at record plant. They, they could pick out that pre- Wow. Well, that didn't be told it was in the, you know, what it was. So what you first did um, at Roy's request was rebuild the, the, the 101 mic pre for the desk at, it, uh, it at was, record plant? It was the two, you know, we did a two-channel mm -hmm. mic pre that was dual 101s in a really small format. 
And uh, it was record playing. In fact, that same circuit found its way into the last uh, Aerosmith album. So, so now, where does that bring us to the present? Are you still doing those circuits, or is that now what's been incorporated into the STX 100? Well, we stopped 502 for a while, A, because it's, uh, you know, it's not a very inexpensive box, but it was hard to produce, and we just didn't have the financial wherewithal to keep building them and stock them. Uh, we're going back to it. It's coming back and out. That one was called the 502. M502. M502 right. is the record plant. Yeah, and and okay. it'll be back in about six months. We've, we're building two or three custom orders right now for customers. What does M stand for? Just Mike Pre or something? Yeah, Mike Pre. Um, it'll be bigger, bigger meters, and but it will come back. We we tried to forget about it. It was very difficult to produce because of the size. Right. Very reliable. I mean, used ones go for more than I sold them for. So maybe this when they're available, there'll be an investment, but but uh, a good investment. Well, they're all discreet. Too. They're yeah. all discreet, yeah. and uh, and there is a sonic difference. It's minimal. I mean, it is minimal. I mean, I've listened to it. I can't hear it. People with better ears than myself, I, they can pick it out. Interesting. But it, you know, it's you know, it's a it's a. Uh, um, that brings three, up a whole interesting question of the challenge of trying to design and build stuff that you need to rely on somebody who uses it also to to give you the feedback and let you know when it's right. Like well, they'll typically tell you. I don't have any problems with opinions. Yeah. And, t- and and what we found is when someone calls us, especially someone in standing, you know, it's known, and they make a comment, they're typically right. Right. Uh, we've had comments where something's wrong at 7K. You know, there's something wrong. And it was a resistor value. Wow. I mean, it's just, so when I get a call, it's typically, I don't go, oh, yeah, right. Um, and so that's, that's kind of, originally when Spectra started, it was electrical engineers specs, specifying our gear. Musicians only walked in the door and walked out the door and did their a few, little bit of partying in between with their singing, but it, they weren't involved. Now you've got the musicians involved and they can hear it. And so it's actually made our job a little easier because they, they can't put their finger on it, but they can say that, that sounds like it should sound. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's, it's a little easier to deal with in that realm. And they're the ones writing the checks now. So the shoes on their foot. Well, my experience and my my knowledge, um, you know, I'm, I was listening and using the STX 100s on a pair of overheads on the drums all weekend, doing some recording, and um, I just noticed that they sounded great. You know, it's like I'm I'm pulling up levels and I'm like, man, that just sounds just sounds really good. It's like the you know I can hear the detail in the cymbals, I can hear the tone in the toms. Like if the toms sound unique and even a little bit flubby the way they're tuned out there. It doesn't bother me. It just sounds cool. It's just like, that's what they sound like, you know? I guess it's like what Matt said, where you go out and you hear what the drums sound like, and then you hear it through the speaker, and you're like, yeah, that's the sound right there. That's correct. Which is pretty cool, you know? And again, we're not changing the waveform. We're, right. We're, we're right. Real. That's even implied in our logo. You know, that input and output are the same. Those are waveforms of the logo. But, but I didn't plug it through a 610 Next to manage the peaks and start bringing up the level to tape. So I'm excited to try that next. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm going to leave one with you. Uh, but at one yeah. of the things, so I, what I'm looking forward to is plugging my guitar through it because usually I'm playing a guitar. And that's the thing where, as the musician, I just instantly hear what's coming back to me in the headphones. I'm like, oh, my God, that sounds like what I'm trying to do versus something's getting lost in translation. So that'll be exciting to hear. Yeah. And again, it's the dynamic range. It's the presence. Uh, this There's an attitude, and 
good, good or bad, I'm not t- trying to be judgmental on this, but you know, they, we're going to fix it in the box. We're going to put a plug in that's going to mimic this or mimic that. I, I don't, I can't firsthand knowledge, but I've been kind of told by certain people they've tried to do a plug in of a 610. Well, you can't physically do it because of the speeds. Interesting. You might be able to mimic the compressor's overload characteristic, but as a plug in, it, it, you just can't do it with current technology. And so, um, I've heard that about plug-in design that there are some things that you can't that you can do in the analog world you can't do in a plug-in, but then there are things you can do in the plug-in world that you can't do in that's the analog right. world. That's right. That's right. It's always a balancing. But act. again, it's an effect. Okay, we're not in the effect business. Now, if you overdrive our gear, yeah. I mean, when we bought the business, we were just horrified to find out that the six ten was the world's best dirty compressor. And I'm thinking to myself, all this effort to create a clean waveform, and this is what it's known for. And I said, no one's going to pay $1,500 for an effect. Oh, yeah, we do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but but you know what? Still, if you overdrive a 610, it will do things that are magical. And uh, Chad Blake is well known for his ability to play with slope and release controls for hours. Yeah, let's get it talk right. more. Again, we were trying to get into what are the controls in the 610. Yeah. I don't think we could finish that, but... Um, yeah. I, hold on, I can't really see the face of it, but we've got, I know we have a, a slope, there's a release, I think there's an input and an output or something. That's is correct. That, that yeah. yeah, and then you got your pads. Oh, and there's the also side. a pad. Yeah, uh, and gain, which were where your, your meters to be configured. Yeah, give but us a breakdown. What you've got is, and you can go to my, I do have a real simple video on YouTube, it's like seven minutes, so it'll give you the three separate operations of a 610. But essentially you have peak limiting, peak limiting with some compression, and then compression. And so when you, what we always tell a customer to do is initially set it up as a peak limiter. Don't use the compressor. So that means the slope control on the top buttons all the way clockwise. Like all the way clockwise, which five is five o'clock. That's that's the most the high the fastest slope, which is no. There's that's no slope. That's no slope. Right. That's okay. no slope. It's backwards from what you'd think it would be. Okay. And then we have the release time, which is affected by the slope setting, and this and the release times. That's kind of an undefinable because I'm I've got the mathematical formula on how you can tell where the slope time needs to be, but what we found out is done by feel. So when we think of slope, we think of a ski slope. If it's if it looks pretty steep and we're coming down fast, that means we're not doing compression on it. But if it's a shallow, if it's a bunny bunny trail for skiing, that's, that's massive compression or that's massive good. limiting or we're, compression. Well, it'd be compression. Yeah, yeah. we're not. Again, it's definitions. All right. Sorry well, for all of you well, who live in the tropics and you, you're like, what are you talking about, Lee? Well, 1176, and I'm not trying to pick on 1176s, but the, the definition, I think, and I might be wrong, excuse me if I am, anything above nine to one compression is considered peak limiting. Well, that's the opposite of what we think it is it's because the peaks are separate, have nothing to do with the compression function. So it's just a matter of how you define it. But you also have... Attack time is in the millisecond range with 1176, and we're in the nanosecond range. Right, right. Nine, 90, billion, faster, 90 yeah. billionths of a second, which is over a megacycle. So one's audible, one's inaudible. But back to the control functions, the slope control is all the way, you know, five o'clock. The release time, and we always just say leave it at 12 o'clock, even if you're not using it, because it shouldn't affect the peak limiting because it's not engaging the compressor. But the release time is based on what your frequency, low frequency content is. And so if you're doing a kick or a bass guitar, it's going to have longer release time than if you've got a vocal. 
Uh, and it's done, I think, by ear better than it is by a calculator. Uh, you just turn it. You'll know if you don't have enough release time. You'll cut off the waveform. You'll hear the audible distortion. You can physically hear it. Interesting. But on the slope, again, it's it's based on input level content because the, our compressors, you know, it's, 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 it's uh, controlled a lot by frequency. Specifically, the lower frequency is weighted differently than the higher right. frequency. But you can set the gain reduction... And as you go counterclockwise, you dial in the compression. Which knob is the gain reduction? That'll be the slope. The slope. Okay, great. That's just so slope. we've got an input and an output. And with the slope turned all the way clockwise, we start by bringing up the input and the output until, do we know, is it like the mic pre, the STX100, where we, where we get a little flash of the red? Well, and this we is where I wanted to explain the threshold circuit. The threshold circuit operates in the megacycle range. It's not a standard peak light. It's a it's it's like an oscilloscope. So you have a little threshold light, and the second that the peak crosses the threshold, which is at minus forty, okay, anything above minus forty will trigger the threshold light. Okay. As you bring your input up, what I tell the customer to do the first time is get it to where it occasionally flashes. That means you're peak limiting. No compression. Right. And then you go to your output to get the gain you need. At that point, you've got a peak limiter only. Mm-hmm. Okay. As you bring the input up, you'll notice the flat the threshold light gets more and more consistent to the point. And you'll also, if you turn on the gain reduction on the meter, the GR, you'll notice you'll start gaining some compression. That's you're in that mode is now peak limiting with compression, some compression. Right, right. And you're never going to hear the compressor. I guarantee you, you're not going to hear this thing engage, especially at low, we, we low might ratios. Just, what what do we hear? We just hear more of the body of the sound come forward. You just you hear the dynamic range starting to lesson. Right. You're setting the lid, but where that's handy, and I've, it took me years to get the mastering and the disc cutters to do this, I say set it between 1 and 3 dB of compression on the V610. You're never going to hear it, but it sets a lid. Right, and, and in the mastering stage, you might look at that and go like, that sounds like a lot of needle deflection, or maybe at the mix bus level, you might think, that sounds like a lot of movement. But if you're not hearing it in the same way, I think that's the thing is we have to remember that we learn how to use the 610 a little differently than we're used to with an 1176 or an LA-2A oh, yeah. or any other compressor, you know, certainly a plug-in compressor. Yeah, the source, the source will always be different. It'll change the settings. Like I think on 1176, they say take the inputs to 12 and 12, output and input. No. If you're dealing with 25 dB peaks with a kick drum, you're barely going to have that input open before you start limiting. Right. If you have it on a keyboard, a B3 or something, no, you're going to be on the other end. So you're saying no with peaks. the 610, you barely have the input up on a kick drum or a snare drum? Comparatively speaking, if you had a hot condenser, let's say. Right, okay. If you had a Coles, no. Right. Have that, but, but what about the 57 on a snare? Where would the 57s lend themselves, you know, you're right around 12 o'clock on the input. Okay, great. So, so you still have plenty of room. soaking up a little transient itself just with a dynamic. And relatively low output, you know, minus 40, minus 48, 50 right. range. But again, what you're doing though is you got enough work, you can do enough, you have enough room when you're setting the input, you can, you know, set the threshold. But back to peak limiting, that's where we start. And then where the artist gets involved, which I don't want to have anything to do with, is the compressor and the release time. And this is where Mr. Blake and some many others have figured out their little nuances. Because with slope, you know, and he'll, he'll imply this a few times, some of his videos I've seen, where your slope is and then go back and forth with the release time. There's some interesting anomalies that occur, which are not part of our no distortion edict, but can give you some real interesting 
kick and snare, vocal, things like that. So it becomes an effects device in that mode. Now on the other side of the box is the is the makeup gain. And that's right. where the 101 resides on the C610. And that's your 40 dB of makeup gain. But it's that console, that original 1964 circuit. Mm -hmm. it's, that's what sits on the... And on the V610, we have a 110A, which gets you into the plus 24 world. The C goes, you know, plus 16. Mm -hmm. Where the, the V, for again, the and mastering is it even guys, hotter output? Plus 24. Now, why do you need an even hotter output at the mastering stage? Again, that's a political statement. I don't know. Um, <laughs> okay. I just, it, it does it. Good and the other thing to remember about our gears, when we say plus 24, I don't care if you run a thousand percent where the peaks through it, it's not going to clip. So when we say plus 24, it's plus 24. And and where the other guy's doing plus 24, plus 26, plus 28, because you're operating now 10 dB below that lid. Okay. So you're really getting plus 14, plus 18. Because you had to have that 10 dB for the headroom. Yeah. Our gear doesn't care. So when you, we say plus 24, it's plus 24. Right on, right yeah. on. Well, again, I, I think um, most of us don't ever think about things like plus 16 and plus 24. And we just think about, like, does it sound good? And, and well, yeah, but, but good, ultimately, good you know, you, mix in the end. But yeah, it's good to know that. I'm not trying there. to turn you guys into bigger nerds, but <laughs> it's a good idea to understand that relationship. Yeah. Because yeah. you're going to get into situations where this thing sounds like hell. There's no range. It's noisy. Yep. And if you can do some quick things in your head, you can go, oh, I got to put a pad here and take it up there. Well, that's that's great. Because one of, you know, my question that I wrote down was helping us to sort of understand signal flow. And, and I think that you've been describing all that just through this process of right. explaining, you know, the peaks, the, the initial details and stuff that's happening and then the, um, or the attack. And then the the body of the sound and RMS and all that. Um, let me see what kind of I got other questions from some of our listeners too, which we can maybe okay. tackle a few of. Um, although before we do that, maybe I should let you have a chance to explain what the STX five hundred is all about. And I think you have something new in the works too, the, right? The STX six hundred, right? Uh, the STX. Let me back up. Five hundred was batted around in our office for five years. I mean, the guys at Tape Op were pushing us. We had a hard time thinking, A, is this is this going to last? Um, B, can people people look at this as not studio grade, Grammy state? You know, all these issues because of the, primarily the power supply is diminished. What is the 500? The, the 500 series is an API format. It was introduced. No, no, I mean, what is the STX 500 is what I meant. Oh, the 500, the EQ? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Or we can talk, talk about both topics. Well, I was just going to go into how the thing developed, sure, yeah, and absolutely. then I'll go into what happened. Sorry, sorry. I just oh, that's fine. That's fine. Um, we get confusion between the 500 and the 500 series. But in any way, they deal with a lower voltage rail, and then they have any number of anomalies. The power supplies aren't big enough. Or there's noise, and you know. This is the 500 series. So, Rockstars, when you think about, like, uh, you know, the, the 500 rack, for example, that's what Bill's talking about right there. Right. So, there was an argument in the office. Do we do it? Do we not do it? Finally, one day I said, okay, when um, I talked to Matt, you know, Matt Rossbring, I said, I'm going to build a prototype and um, don't say anything to anybody. Really, it wasn't even known in the office. Built it in the garage and shipped it off to, uh, to Memphis. And Matt was working with the drive-by truckers. And um, 
this thing's really, in fact, I'll post a photo. It's one of the ugliest prototypes you'll ever see. It's, it's, in fact, I did it on purpose. It's, it's really ugly. He, he brought it into the studio and they, they laughed. What is that? I think they were using a 1073 version of something. Anyway, long story short, they plugged the guitar into it and never left the session. When they did their last album last year, they asked for it back. Nice. And so, but what I did was we took the 110, which doesn't need a lot of special power supply considerations that most 500s use because of that weird 16-volt bipolar rail. Uh, we didn't have to do anything there. And, then, and that also has to do with the fact that you're talking about, uh, I forget what you called it, voltage transfer rather than power transfer? Well, it, it operates the same way, yeah. That's still voltage transfer design. But the big thing is since we don't draw power in our designs, the rack doesn't know we're even there. Right. We're under 50 mils at plus 20 out is what that device. For I mean, that's tech. what I was going to say, 50 mils at tw plus 20 out. Yeah, and, and so if you load the rack up, 300 mils, which is a third of an amp, and these guys are selling your racks that do two and a half amps. So yeah. we don't have inrush problems when you turn it on. The thing, you know, craps out the power supply, things like that. But anyway, long story short, we, we built the thing. And then when we sonically, we started testing it. The circuit is really close to what Dilly introduced in 1974. It's called a 1024. Mm -hmm. Where it's a combination, it was a hybrid because of the Harrisons and the MCIs and, and the... Uh, APIs of the world had started to migrate to ICs. We were all discreet. And so the record plant desk in 1969 was $100,000. It's all discreet. Michael Jackson's 1024, which was all discreet, 1975, 100000 Wow. Which in today's money right, is... that's a lot more than that. It's a lot of Teslas, okay? And so I started looking at the circuit going, okay, a 1024 has, in the critical stages, a 110. Non-critical stages, ICs, as long as you treat them properly and you understand the limitations of what they can and cannot do. And so that's what the STX100 is. To keep the price under $1,000 retail, uh, the important part is still a 110A. It's right. still why it sounds so good. And the less important things are not. Uh, still a high-quality transformer on the input, things that you have to have. But in in comparing the two, um, hard, hard to tell the difference between a a 502 and M502 we talked about earlier right. at 3,000 a channel. Okay. That's what they sell for. Mm -hmm. And this box at less than 1,000 a channel. Yeah. And then along the STX lines, because I didn't want to get into uh, legal issues, you can add an A and you can tell what I was thinking. But the STX 500 was the EQ that we talked about earlier the brain salad surgery, the stacks. Mm hmm That iteration. So it's the 502 passive EQ, which you can add. Later, take or not take it, or you just let the pre stand by itself. What we found, and I'm just being honest about this, uh, and this goes with guys that you know are well, famous drummers, very few EQs have been sold in the drumming realm because when they hear them, they say, I don't need an EQ. Right. That, that was my thought when I pulled up the yeah. drums. I was like, I already, I don't need to add high end and low end. And well, I'm stuff. not trying to unsell product, but you know, in other things like vocals and stuff, it's nice to have the EQ, but Sure. The percussionists have all bought straight STX 100s without the EQ. It's passive. It plugs into the side of the, you know, the the 100. It's like a five minute, you know, ad. But that was the comment or com the idea behind the design was let's make it like the stacks 
Arden desk. So you plug in an STX 100 into the API 500 rack, for example. Right. That's what that's what I've got here on loan from you. And then you plug the 500 in next to it, but the 500 actually plugs into the 100 that's right next to it. It doesn't plug into it's, the card slot of the. It's of the mated box. to it. There's no there's no edge connector yeah. on it. It's just passive. And, and if it's passive, does that mean it actually doesn't even need power? That's correct, and it also doesn't have phase shift issues. Also doesn't have saturation issues yeah. because that was the big thing of the day was conventional design was you were driving into an EQ from the output of the pre, which you get all kinds of, again, power transfer, all kinds of anomalies, phase shift, distortion, couldn't handle plus 12 at 50, all these things that would happen in that kind of a circuit where ours is in the feedback loop, low voltage, and it's not interactive with the output stage. So, what happens is, and people notice this with our EQs, there's no fa- even though it's passive, there's no phase shift. Interesting. Wow. In fact, we were specifying, and again, we're in the weeds a little bit, but I got to say this stuff. We were advertising uh, less than one degree of phase shift up to 100 kilohertz in 1969. And Input what, to output on a desk. What does phase shift mean to us as we're listening? It, does, it just means that it starts screwing up the sound, right? It just well, what sounds- happens, like another example is Dan's desk. Uh, you can take stems through his desk, no EQ, uh, all of a sudden the low end comes up. What's happening is, is every stage, if you're using power transfer, and I'll give you an example, 1176 has about 20 to 25 dB of phase shift. Well, if you think at 90 degrees or 180 degrees starts cutting your low end, Cumulatively, that's what's going on. And you'll really notice in the low end below 400 cycles that all of a sudden the low end just goes away. Interesting, yeah. And so you'll be at this part of the desk and you'll be pulling out of it and saying it sounds okay. Then you go to the two bus and all of a sudden it's gone. And that's because of the phase shift that's going on in the desk. Okay. So we used to specify before the world even understood it, the input to the output of the desk less than one degree to 100 kilohertz. So when you hear our equalizers, they're very musical. They don't alter the waveform, especially the low end. And like a lot of their, well, Aerosmith, get your wings. From what I was told, plus 12 at 50 cycles. Of on what? The, the on kick the kick. Drum? Yeah. Just boost. cranking it up? Yeah. No clipping. Awesome. So, again, it's not something you need to buy. But, you know, the guys, you know, what they'll do is they'll do a little mix. They'll do like four STX 100s and maybe two 100s with 500s paired to them. It's something you can. I bet. I bet a pair of those one hundreds, you know, running your mix through it with a little bit of the high boost and, and right. low boost would probably sound pretty sweet. Well, that's what Roy was doing on the, on the before he passed. He did the, he mastered the the last Alice Cooper album and he used five hundred twos and that's what he said. He was playing around at the high frequency. Very with it, cool. You know? Very cool. Now, what's the STX six hundred? Well, the six hundred we've been working on it for about about three years three and a half, four years. Originally, it was going to be designed as a front end to a radar recorder. And yeah, so, I the radars. Yeah. Those are known for sounding really great. They're coming back, too. Right on. In fact, they are back. Anyway, I thought, well, this would be a great little mic pre for... So I built the prototype, shipped it up, got into conversations. It, it just didn't work out. So then I sent it to Nashville. Matt had it. Dave Cobb had it. And everybody said, it's only got, you know, it has two knobs. It was like the original 600 design with just no slope and release, fixed slope, fixed release. And Dave started to use it, and he had some rather well-known engineers coming out of L.A. using it, just really liked it. And 
but again, it was in a full-size 610 chassis, but it had the same concept, you know, input, output, that's it, two knobs. Um, had him ship it back, called me on the phone. He says, I want it. He ended up with, he still has the prototype, the 600. But it, what we did is we took that design concept and put it into a single space 500. So it's a 610 okay, in a 500 series. It's got the same 601 as the V610 has in it and the C610 and the 611. So it's the same front end as our other complementers. But it had also can be used as a mic pre. It has about 60 dB again, 62 dB again. So it's a mic pre limiter with some compression. So it does about what 80% of a 610 would be used for. It won't give any of the wild slopes. It won't give any of the, the control over the release times. It's just right, fixed. Right. But setup time is minutes or less. Right. So our big deal is time. You know, a lot of these guys just want the limiter. They can't, they're having issues keeping their tape machines alive and they want to drive a higher level into their into their uh, digital recorder, into their DAW, the 610, or the 600 actually, would give you that that headroom, and it just takes a few seconds to set each input up. Interesting. So it's almost like saying, this is a solution for loving the sound of analog tape, but working in a DAW, you can, it's, it, it um, does something similar to tape, but as you described, it actually does it better than tape because it doesn't right. distort that, that limiting right. of the transient. Right. And also, you know, that we've got a few beta pieces out, and the, the first comment was some people actually like the sound of it, which is not what we we're trying to do on kick and snare and in room miking. But it's just, uh, again, an affordable, you know, $1,000 price range retail, 610, in a 600 format, quick to set up. It doesn't take a learning curve is minutes. So that's that's our new product. You know, we've got it out and test. I don't think it probably we'll see it probably till August. Right. But it's it's we've put more time and effort into this thing than anything else we've ever built because it has to be right. Because again, the folks that are buying it are not, you know, real used to using a six ten. Yeah. But if you go back to just a two knob, because I remember reading the early notes on the six hundred, which never again was produced, it was a two knob device. Well, let's talk about a little bit about you know. Um, when it comes to price points on some of the nicer pieces of gear like that, um, some of it has to do with having high-quality transformers in there, right? Right. And, and tell us about the transformer choice that you use. For well, right now we're using, we're using a lot of Cinemag. Um, we used to use a lot of Souter, um, but uh, we went Cinemag a few years ago. I've had very, very good luck with them. I even shouldn't even say luck. Results. Um, really like their attitude and their design. Uh, we, uh, when we build things, they're still done the old ways, 1965. Everything's still hand soldered. We're still using some of the same test jigs because there's things about our design that you have to match certain stages or they won't work. If they work, they work very poorly. Right. Uh, we still use the same procedures. We still build most, 95% of any of our products is U.S. The chassis are offshore, but most everything um, in the box is U.S. And that's why when you see used Spectra, it commands such a high price because we're still using, like on the 500 EQ, it's still Greyhill switches. In fact, the women who built the switches in 1967, remember they were just retiring at Greyhill in Chicago. They saw the order come through and they said, didn't we used to build these guys switches? That's funny. And that's the same, same group in Chicago, but very expensive. I mean, you know... We, and the switches, I noticed, are really high quality. And oh, they're, also on the 610, um, you know, the C610... It's nice stepped 
Right. Good quality stuff and it doesn't break. And that's why, again, when you see our stuff online, our old desks are over $100,000 in some cases because you can rebuild them. It's all military spec switches. I have yet to see a Gray Hill switch come back on an EQ. Period. Wow. And I'm talking about 67 forward. So that's why we use a lot of this stuff and it does affect the price. You know, it's not a $5 switch. It's, you know. Well, you know, it's funny as musicians, we put up with a lot of things not quite working in the studio, but it's probably our biggest frustration. Right. Because <laughs> well, you, you, it really pisses you off when you're, when you've got a musical idea and you're trying to pursue it and then something's crackling and crusting, not working. Well, that's the folks. Buzzing, that t- distorting, buzzing, whatever. Yeah. The folks at Tape Op own a lot of our stuff. And, and one of the, uh, senior people told me one day, he says, we realized about three years ago we don't have any s- support costs on your gear. It doesn't break. And I said, well, that's the idea. He says, I have full-time people on staff for just certain gear. He says, your stuff doesn't break. And I said, well, hopefully it wouldn't. But it's all designed with it operating within a given parameter. It's not like we're pushing right, anything. Right. We're not asking any more than it's, you know. But that's again why the cost is rel- remains relatively high on this stuff is because it's it's uh, the quality. So good. yeah, well that's great. I'd rather pay a little bit more for a car that doesn't need to go into the shop right. a whole lot. Want to record killer drums in your home studio? Then check out Rockstars of Drums to learn how to record, edit, and mix pro-sounding drums with a professional Nashville session drummer in a Grammy-winning studio. Or if you're ready to start mastering your own records at home, then check out Rockstars of Mastering, where I walk you through exactly how I mastered my own records, Skadoosh, using nothing but plugins in PreSona Studio One. And if mixing is your focus, then check out my free course, Mix Master Bundle, where I show you how to mix using stock and free plugins and Pro Tools. And the best part is these techniques would work for you in whichever DAW you're using right now. Plus, you get a look at how I recorded everything in my studio and multi-track downloads for you to practice mixing and even include in your mixing portfolio if you want. Are you ready to make your best record ever? Then go to Mix Master Bundle to get started for free now or look for the clickable link in the show notes of this episode. Let's see, what else do we want to talk about? The BBDI. That's another one I just used on the session. Man, that sounded amazing. We were, yeah. we were plugging our bass through it. I don't think I've ever heard a bass DI sound that good. Yeah, and again, what it is, is it's our principles of voltage transfer versus uh, power transfer, trying to not give you any kind of signature. Ultra low THD, top to bottom. Um, handles a lot of level. The funny part again it's, it's about it's a passive DI. It's though. a passive it's not like DI. A, some fancy active thing. No passive DI, and I've been I've been toying with an active, but I don't know where we're at on that right now. Um, but it's one of those boxes again that you hear the harmonics, and what I've been told by people who have better ears again than I, uh, one hundred to five hundred range, huge gets lost. A lot of stuff gets lost in there, and again that comes back to the power versus voltage transfer, where you're going to pick up some distortion been told you hear things you don't hear typically. Yeah. And then above 10 kilohertz, it just keeps going. It doesn't roll anything off, which is again a another thing, but it's not again no signature. We're not trying to create an artifact, we're not trying to create a sound. It's just what goes in comes out. But the funny part of this is I'm involved with people that do keyboard, the old analog uh, Oberheims and Moogs and that, and they plugged our that DI into it just to the interface one day. And all of a sudden harmonics and the sound and I'm going well uh, that shouldn't be right 
Other than like the common, I, I knew I liked my keyboard. I just didn't know I liked right. It that other much. than the key, other than the other than the you know common mode rejection from a balanced output. I'm going. It shouldn't be that big. Then we have these guys with these two hundred dollar keyboards plugging them in, going. It rivals something an order of magnitude more. And I, the only thing I can figure out at this point is the the driving amplifiers and the outputs of these keyboards are so weak that they like that higher impedance. And they they are happier because I haven't had a situation. And the BBDI where, has a high impedance, to right? It. So it's going to look at it like a guitar would see it. So it's it's relatively happy. The levels are high enough; you're not going to get into the noise. So, but I've been selling probably a third of those BBDIs have been going to keyboard guys, and um, and I have yet to have someone say it didn't make a major improvement. And we're also trying to keep the thing priced right. You know, yeah, what's the three hundred dollar range? Right. You know, I'm not. I'm trying to keep it right. Again, a very expensive, high-quality transformer, and it's, you know, you can drive a truck over it. Yeah. But, but it's one of those things that... But maybe don't drive a truck over it. No, don't. No. But, I mean, it's, it, it'll handle some abuse. But the point is, is, is voltage transfer. It's, it's stable. And when you plug stuff into it, I think you'll be surprised what you hear. All right, so uh, let's jump into some questions here, too. Uh, we got a question. This comes in from Brian Carter. What's up, Brian? Um, he asked, what was your motivation in designing the new preamps what do you have in mind for the future of Spectra 1964? Well, what was in mind was affordability. And, and the goal was, A, it can't sound... Uh, let me back up. When you hear about 500 series, you hear it's almost as good. It's close. It'll get you there kind of stuff. We weren't going to build it unless it sounded like our original gear. Right. We just weren't going to do it. We weren't going to have a, you know, well, but... Um, that was the whole idea. Keep it to where anybody can afford at least two channels of this stuff, but will exceed the performance of any desk in the world. Right. And when I say any desk, I mean any desk or any <laughs> pre. I mean any boutique pre. I don't care what, in a 500 chassis. And, I, and I'm not going to give names out today, but we've had folks, I won't use a 500. It's not professional. And they get it in the studio and they call me back and we have one customer over 20 channels now. So it's, and these are being, these are big time productions. These aren't, you know, yeah, these are big deals. Can I add something that I understand from your explanation of, of some of this stuff? So the design in the STX 100 means that we've got, um, that we're not demanding a great deal of the power rail on these 500 racks. And if you think about what that means, Rockstars, imagine that you've got like, uh, I'm not sure how many you can fit in there, what, six or something like that in, in a lunchbox. So imagine you got six mic pre's going in a lunchbox and one of them is on the snare and the drummer hits the snare. With that transient and that spike, if, if, if it's a mic pre design that requires all that energy to come from the power supply, all of a sudden this power supply is like, whoa, you know, to the other five mic pre's, whoa, everybody hold on, I got to manage this one spike going on. And the STX 100 series doesn't, require that same thing. One-tenth, so, one in most cases, one-tenth of the power. Yeah, so therefore, yeah. the power rail isn't isn't failing. Even if it's momentarily, You, the we hear it, you know? I think that's my, under, if, correct me if I'm wrong, Bill, that, but I think I'm part, understanding that's part, that right That's now. part of it. Um, and again, it goes back to where we started in the conversation. Uh, power versus voltage. And if your front end's just processing voltage, um, then you're going to have a lot more um, better recovery and better headroom. 
All right, we got another question here. This one comes from Christopher. Well, I was going to Oh, sorry, I got to finish that one. Answer. Okay, my bad. Well, the, no, the future stuff. He had the future stuff. I almost forgot too. Um the STX 600 is a big deal um, because it's a mic pre compressor limiter. Uh, that's a huge one. Uh, we're bringing back out the 502, uh, t the two. We have been working on some sidecars, but um, because of costs and obligations, uh, they're still probably six months to a year out. We're trying to come up with some 12 channel, uh, 10, 12 channel modular ones. So you can start out relatively small, just do in and out. Small, maybe a two bus with some monitoring capability, but that's long term. Um, big consoles, very few. I mean, to give you an example, our but six, you know, we can't wait, right? Yeah, well, the 16 channel is you know 150k range, which is not reasonable. And you got to understand when these desks were averaging 25 to 50 thousand dollars in the 70s, these guys were getting 150, 200 bucks an hour. <laughs> they were flying jet planes to gigs. Yeah, well, Roy Roy had a Rolls Royce outside of Record Plan A with a driver idling. Okay, that's where we Just were at. Just to be ready to go yeah, somewhere. That's where that's where we were at. And and that's not coming back. Um, but I used to see these budgets these guys would would uh develop, you know, hundred thousand dollars for a record those days. It was just, you know, uh, things we have we'll never see again. So the big desks, unless you've got somebody that really has the wherewithal, you know, I don't know if we're going to be building a lot of those. We built one in the last couple of years. Um, but now what about the 500 series? Does that open up the possibility for kind of 500-style desks and that sort of thing? Yeah, we're coming up with a, on the bench, again, it's all, it's all drawn up in that. We've got um, a two-channel STX 600, uh, possibly a self-amplified uh, 500, where it's got a, a 110 in it, you know, so it could act as a standalone EQ because people are really conscious of space. Um, those are the big things right now on the board. The, um, the C we just came out with this year because that thing took a few years because we wanted it to look like the 1969 model and we, we were successful. That's the C610. Right. That's why it's called the classic 610 because that was built in that look for about 10 years. Okay, great. And and we were noticing on eBay they were getting five hundred dollars more used because of the look. So we went and had the machined aluminum knobs made and made it look like the sixty nine version. Thank you, eBay. Yeah. Well, that's what caused the whole thing was we were paying one hundred fifty two hundred dollars for a six ten and oh five oh four, and all of a sudden they went to twelve hundred dollars and we're going, what happened? And guys were putting them in front of their DAWs. Right. Yeah. And that's we didn't know. That's what led us to believe, well, maybe we ought to just start building 610s again. That was the whole start was eBay. Yeah. eBay, yeah. That's wild. Yeah. That's wild. Um, all right, so here's a question. This is from uh, Christopher Krogh, or Crow. I hope I'm pronouncing your name right, Christopher. Um, and he asks, what about the old um, Spectrosonics mini mixers? Is that, do you know anything about that? Maybe yeah, well, there, there was uh, Universal. I think this is what he's talking about. Universal um, uh, and the film people's Universal, they had, I think, 10 or 12 mini mixers built that had 101s in them and some 601 compressor limiter cards. And they found their way out of whoever had them in storage. We had one we went through and rebuilt it, turned it into a 6 by one with a, a 601 in it. Um, there are a few around that people have restored. They did a pretty good job on them. 
that was, I think, what he's referring to is that mini mixer. They show up occasionally in in um, on uh, on eBay, um, but as far as I could tell, I found the original drawings, luckily, and they were they were built by Spectra. You know, first I thought no, but they were. There are also occasionally broadcast desks that show up. Dilly was building broadcast desks with one on ones in them. Those will show up. Um, they were doing a lot of custom stuff. In fact, I've got a little desk that's, you know, I've reconfigured it so it's close to the stack desk, stacks desk, but 13 channels. But again, to go, to delve into that world, it's the same issue as, um, you know, making a decision about building consoles. Yeah, it's a tough one because of cost. Yeah. And when we're, you know, when Dilly started, there were four or five manufacturers and they all were, had the same constraints as far as building discrete and, weren't offshore. And so everybody kind of was in the same ballpark and it came down to performance. It was easy to differentiate what you wanted to buy. Now there are 50 or 100 of one or two, three or four or five types. And most of them are offshore. And we have a real disadvantage. I mean, we're in some cases, 10 to one, you know, building it here in the US. Um, of course, there's the difference in what you end up with, but you still have that issue, that perception. And so we're kind of limited to where we can go, you know, on some of those things. Well, we're excited about where you are going. So I appreciate you inviting us. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a pleasure. Um, we got another question here. This one uh, comes from Chris Garge, Garge or Garge. Um, hope I'm pronouncing your name right, Chris. And he said, uh, "Why keep changing the products around? The M610 Pro is great." So a little bit of a provocative question. Oh, that's a good question because the M610 was, again, that was one of those products before we understood manufacturing and uh, and limitations. Um, and time, you know, what it costs to do. The M610 was basically a V610 with analog pots, just regular pots for slope release. The, um, is all discrete. It was very expensive, but it performed well. It was very reliable. Two things, um, hard to build, really hard to build. And that was when Jim was, exercising his design prowess and said, how much can we fit in a little box? So you have a two-channel compressor limiter, full function, dual, you know, with 110 makeup gain and all discrete circuits, you know, with single rack space, which is, a, is, is crazy. I mean, and it works. And it's, but to build those things was tough. No one complained, but they did them. Um, it's kind of come back eventually, but it's going to be in a larger format. Right. But we just didn't, we, the amount of time and effort went into those things, we, the price would have had to been a lot higher. And that's why that, and that's same with the M502, same problem. Yeah. All right, cool. So then uh, here's another one. This comes from Hamish um, Benjamin. Uh, he says, uh, will you be on my podcast too? He's got a great podcast sure. called Somewhere Sound. All right, there you go, Hamish. We'll, we'll connect you. Anytime. Um, all right, so then, then there's another one from Anthony Gravino, and he just said to ask you about the Arden consoles. Well, Arden, uh, <clears throat> Arden was kind of in the shadows of Stacks, and so when um, Stacks got their first desk, and I think right around 1967, um, John Fry was tied to Stacks, but uh, separate but together. And so what John did is he got a close um, version built by Well Jeton Autotronics. So. So the original Stacks desk went in 67. I believe John got his 67, 68. That desk produced a lot of famous uh, recordings, and that's where you get into 
you know, and I've, we've got a listed here, but we've we've got uh, all the early ZZ Top and James Taylor and the mix on Led Zeppelin. Big Star, do you know if that was Big Star was down on time. that desk? That's why I think about those records as having yeah. this bright, detailed, this crispness yeah. that's yeah. like Big Star. In fact, the Jody, the manager of Ardent, was the I believe the drummer. He's been on the podcast. Yeah. He beat you to it. Yeah, um, but that desk is being rebuilt right now in Montreal by. Uh, Tim Herzog, Matt Rossbang bought it, and it's currently being restored. Oh, very it, cool. It'll be, it'll be back in Memphis probably in about six to eight months. Way to go, Matt. But that desk produced, if you go on the list, uh, the number of famous gold platinum that went through that thing. Wow. It was, it was, it was a big deal. But the stacks, stacks went to a secondary desk, um, 71, 72. And I think that might have been a Spectra desk, though it's the one in the museum, but I think that one in the museum is actually owned by the Fry family, but it was a close second. So they had two Spectra desks at Stacks, and John did the same thing. And so if you go into Stacks right now, that one you see, I believe, belongs to John Fry's family. But wow. they were basically paralleling each other through the whole uh, whole deal. Um, but, you know, I've sent you that list of all the famous stuff that came through the, uh, the Arden desk. And then, like I say, stacks from Otis Redding forward till about 78, 77, 78, it was all, all Spectra. And these guys didn't have a lot of capability as far as these were th relatively under 16-channel desks with two and three bus and um, played more. They did more work with the microphones for imaging. A lot of it was Monaro. Uh, like you listen to a staple singers that was done by that group, by those, those two studios, and the imaging is so spot on for stereo, but it's a mono recording. Just they just work the microphones to death. Those yeah, recordings. I love some some mono. So uh, you sent an image, which I'm pulling up right now, just so we can refer to it again. See if I can see it easily. But I think it was a list of records you were pretty sure were done with the Spectra 101 and the 500 EQ. Uh, EQ. Um, bear with me here, as I as I hope my computer will behave. Um, Ad Vision in London, 70 to 73. Uh, albums like Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, Lucky Man, 1970 Brain Salad Surgery in 73. Um, st uh, still You. Does. Still You Turn Me On. Right. Still You Turn Me On, right? Right. Trilogy, 1972 from the beginning. Yes, Fragile. Um, T Rex, Get It On. Another thing, we, that, another thing, another thing, and the name of the studio fails me. They're out of Atlanta. Most of the Leonard Skinner was done on Spectra. There was one I think done at Criteria, but most of the Sweet Home Alabama was done on Spectra desk. Was that down at um, Muscle Shoals? No, it was a. And again, I, forgive me for forgetting the name of the studio outside of Atlanta, but uh, a majority. Okay. Yeah, and the Almond Brothers, they were back up in Memphis on a lot of stuff. All right, very cool. But that was all through on Spectra desks. We were doing a lot of good stuff in the South. I'm learning yeah, that more and more. Muscle Shoals was a Spectra desk off and on. I mean, it's uh, it's kind of, and that one I won't talk about a lot because I'm not real confident with my facts. But, you know, I've got the receipts and I've got things like that. But they were bouncing back and forth with what they were doing. But there was Spectra at Muscle Shoals. It's funny to me that I'm a Yankee of origin but I'm becoming much more and more a Southerner every day. It's easy to do when you listen to the music. Um, so yeah, ZZ Top, uh, Led Zeppelin Three, I think was mixed. That was the mix. Yeah, it wasn't tracking. Yeah. It was the mix. Yeah, they mixed it pretty well. 
Leon Russell and the Shelter People, James Taylor, uh, Mudslide Slim, the Blue Horizon, Big Star Number One. Yeah. That's what it was. One of my favorite records right right there. Isaac Hayes, Booker T and the MGs. Um, I can't seem to get my computer to behave. So Rockstars, I mean, I'll I'll include this in the blog post. Do this right, nice handwritten piece of paper you right. you sent us. It's the, awesome. The only one I'm not sure of is when we go to the West Coast. I've talked to the studio engineers there in in a Cherokee and um, record plant, you know, uh, Sausalito, which has been West. Um, a lot of stuff went through there, but I'm I'm hesitant to until I get better facts. But I was told that. A lot of times they would track Cherokee through the Spectre desk and they'd mix it on an API, but they couldn't reverse that. Wow. So, and I didn't know that. Um, It makes a lot of sense, the whole concept of um, respecting the transients on the way in. Right. Like you get get in the Fleetwood Mac rumors, some of those early albums. Um, Joe Walsh, a lot of albums were done. So really what we need is we need... 250,000 desks side by side. <laughs> That's right. Put a, it's a new concept to the split console idea. Well, they, uh, again, I, Spectrasonics did not focus on who was using what. It's like I told you earlier in the podcast. I had a gold record sitting within five feet of my head. I didn't even bother to look at the labels. Now I'm going to post that. We're restoring that. My friend is restoring that right now as we That's speak. Great. So we'll show that gold record. But if you see what's on that gold record, it's all the big big productions that Tom Dowd was involved with for like a five-year period. That's wild. Uh, but that was, we were, our focus was different. We didn't understand. No one no one talked about it. No one cared who used it. Um, I mean, Michael Jackson for 10, 12 years, that's all he used was Spectre. He even had the, the Scully 100, which was a, uh, a tape machine built with Spectrasonics Electronics. Wow. And I've got, I've got a 16-track at home. What were some of the Michael albums that you remember? Uh, That's what I'm validating right now. All right, we'll find out. You got your work cut out for you, Bill, and we applaud you. And anybody out there that has some of this information, please share it with me because I don't like going off one source. I like to do two or three sources to validate what we're talking about today. We tend to like stories a lot in the studio. Sometimes the story takes precedence. (laughs) It may not be entirely true. I just don't want it bigger than the product line. (laughs) I have, yeah, I have a, uh, a chart on the wall in the other room that um, was made famous by Walter Sear at Sear Sound. Um, and it's the the Q region, and it's this chart of takes, you know, where the t- the first yeah. take's great and the second take's just getting worse. And then there's this mysterious take way out in there that um, they call the Q region. And um, and then, and so, I, you know, I was it was presented as a, a chart that Walter had created, but it wasn't. So I learned about that later. Um that it actually comes from Q Division Studios up in Boston and stuff right. like that. So, well, one of the more interesting stories I can relate is is one I've been fortunate enough. The family, the Dilly family, made available most of Bill's prototypes and his early designs. And he was a big tube guy, you know, sixty to sixty three. And they gave me a hand built twelve channel portable tube mixer. Wow! And the article's written in Audio Magazine, nineteen sixty one. Need a home for that? My studio, I got some room on the console right there. Yeah, I'm sure. There's a lot of people that want that. Um, but anyway, I started asking Greg, his son, about it. And Bill used to be, a, you know, always had to have the big Cadillac with the big, you know, big boat tail wings. And all. He and Les Paul toured California with that. They were in the Audio Engineering wow. Society together and did remote recordings with that, that little portable. It's not little, actually. 
And then I found a concert tone he'd modified the heck out of. That was the three-channel recorder he used. And I've got, you know, and I started, nobody talked about it. I just saw this thing gathering dust, and then we cleaned it up, and I went through all the electrolytics, and everything works, and I'm going to start using it. But if you look at the specs on that thing, I've heard recordings made on that thing. If you hear see, the specs on the thing, rival transistors as far as noise and distortion. Yeah. He, he was doing things on that circuit that he employed in the 101. So, but again, it wasn't a big deal. It's just... It's just high quality. And, and he and Les Paul, he talked about Les Paul like, oh yeah, just less. It wasn't, it wasn't like he was just not impressed with anything beyond. I like the image of um that thing being portable enough to fit in the giant trunk space of a pink winged <laughs> Cadillac. Well, a separate power supply. You know, with the top down and, and Les and, and uh Bill are driving up and down the, the West Coast. Well, I've got a box of tapes and I haven't gone through all of them because I'm paranoid, but Les Paul used to show up to Bill's house in San Bernardino and they do recordings. And Bill's wife would sing vocals and Les would play guitar. And Bill would record me. He had the, everything on remote cables going. You know, the tape machine was in the garage because he didn't have room in his house. And then he had the mixer in his, in his basement. But, but again, it was just so insignificant to them. You know, the history now we would look at is Goku, you know. If we could ask questions again, right? Yeah. Well, you know, we don't build things like that quite as like, no. like maybe people used to. No. But, I mean, even then, I mean, you know, a lot of the iconic figures that we hear about, like um, like Bill, for example, were there standout people who like really built something special. But I think the reason Very they cool. kept ex- uh, increasing the technology and pushing the pushing the envelope was because they weren't that enamored with who they were. They were more enamored with the process and improving the technology, and they could care less about who thought what of them or what they thought. He was a, Bill was a tough guy to deal with. If he didn't like you, he told you. <laughs> and uh, I, I was really fortunate he didn't send me out the door, you know, because a little smart-ass little 22-year-old asking really dumb That's questions. That's when you started. You were 22. Yeah, yeah, in, in front of his chalkboard. And uh, and his son and I, you know, when they moved the factory every morning, cup of coffee and the chalkboard. And um, Just for lessons, just mm-hmm. being taught some stuff about mm-hmm. how it all worked. I didn't know it all. Because he wouldn't tell it all. We had to figure it out right. over time. But uh, but I had the concepts down. And so did Jim. We both had the concepts down really quite well. That's great. And we never were around anything else. So that's all we knew. What were the work hours like back in that at that time? Well, I was there when it was easier. Um, you know, 8 o'clock to 5 o'clock. Um, but prior to me getting there, they had this little hole in the wall on Wall Avenue in Ogden. And it's no bigger than two or three storage sheds and they were building all those desks um, one a month. And this is all up in Utah? Ogden, Utah. They were building one or two a month and I, w- I remember walking back there and women with these huge beehive haircuts and there was so much cigarette smoke you couldn't barely see the wall <laughs> and they're all wiring these looms and all the desks are sitting on their side and like eight desks sitting against the wall and wow. if you saw that it's a bar again it was a bar went to Spectrasonics and went back to being a bar. But I mean, if you saw that place, you'd say there's no way they could build one in a year out of there. And the, the volume that came out of that place was incredible. I look at the serial numbers. I mean, he did, I think, and this is all relative, but he almost did a million dollars a year his third year in business. Wow, good Lord. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. You know, this, this, was the, this was the impact the guy had. Consumer Reports for 20 years, 25 years, when they always used, they always indicate they had a reference system they would reference. It was a Spectrosonics console and Spectrosonics power amps. Wow. 
that was the reference and system. And that's the reference that they're referencing, you know, consumer right. um, playback systems. They and use Spectre to do all the referencing. And so you you hear these stories, and again, it was never made a big I just find this by going through files yeah. and going through correspondence. It's like Tom Dowd, when he was designing his desk, I've got the prototype, battery-powered, of a two-channel console desk. It's got 601 compressors in it. It's got EQs. It's got different termination resistance. For, and he and Phil Ailey sat there and figured out what he wanted for a sound. But this thing is in a little box that's four inches by three inches by 12, 14 inches high. It's a whole console and, a, and it's battery powered. 68, oh, very cool. 1968. Wow. But that's how Tom could tell what he wanted by that combination when he was building the Atlantic desk. I love the image of um, smoky beehive, oh. you know, haircuts and oh. everything, and that somehow that's at the core of getting our stuff to sound great in the studio. When I open files, and I have most of the files locked in a, in a, in a safe, big a walk-in safe. I'll open up files when I'm trying to reverse engineer something, and you open it up and you smell Marlboro 100s or Winston. <laughs> excuse me, Winston 100s. That's all he smoke on a cigarette holder. But I honestly, they haven't been opened in 40, 50 years, and you open it up and it smells like the factory. Wow. And the burn marks, the cigarette burn marks on the paper. I found one the other day was on Pano's desk, a big, long cigarette burn You know, mark. sometimes I walk in the studio here. We are, Obviously, we don't smoke in the studio, but with all the old gear, I just walk in in the morning sometimes and the first thing I smell, I'm just like, just smells like old smoky gear. That tube just desk, a tiny guys, bit. That tube desk, guys, is probably it's got a nicotine coating. I'm not kidding you. It, it's I don't know if I want to clean it off, but, <laughs> but you sit down with that thing and it sits next to me on my workbench in the garage, and it's 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 really it's surreal when you get around some of that old gear. Yeah, that's pretty wild. Yeah. Um, what have I not asked you about that I've we Well, we could go on about. for hours, but the big thing I just wanted uh, this podcast to cover is, you know, why we're different, how we're different. And we are making an effort to get stuff that is more affordable. You know, right so there's no reason if you're if you're starting out in your basement, um, you can't sound as good as the guys, the big guys. Well, I'm gonna um encourage you, Rockstars, and remind everybody too that um when you think about the investment in certain pieces of gear in the studio, just remember that like there's a lot that we can do by making sure we got one really good mic, one really good mic cable, one really good mic pre, and then just go into your That's you right. know, your DAW or your recording system. And uh, it's pretty amazing what you can get away with doing that. That's right. Um, Bill, a few closing questions. We'll, we'll kind of blaze through these. When you started out doing this stuff, what do you feel like was holding you back? It's always money. You know, funding, uh, and again, we're not we're not poor, uh, but you know, when you get to be you know my age and uh, Jim's age, and then you're looking at, okay, do we have twenty years? Yeah, maybe. How much do we want to put out? And there's always that balancing act you're going on. Do you do you jeopardize what you've you know what you've done over the last twenty five years? Uh, and the way banks work these days, it's tough. You know, so you're not going to, you're not going to do it there. Um, and so everything we've done, we've basically done out of, you know, sales. Right. You know, we're not, uh, we're not like uh, dealing with huge lines of credit. So when we make a decision, we have to be very careful, you know, what we're going to produce, how we're going to produce it. And the other thing that's underlying is who's going to support this stuff. Yeah. When we can't we set up a situation where it's all or nothing and we don't make it. Right. Because there's too many people that have bought into our deal. 
and you don't want to get in a situation where you can't be there for them. And and fixing our stuff in warranty is such a big part of our business. Yeah, it's it's, so it's, it's create and support the stuff that people want. Right. And need. Yeah, we're not short on product designs or ideas. We just have to be really careful. And we are going towards the STX line because again, it's easier to to produce, um, and it's a lot more affordable, and the results are are a lot easier had. What about some of the best advice you remember receiving? Maybe anything from Bill when you were starting out? Well, it's you don't you eliminate the cause, you don't minimize the effect. Nice. So that was the first thing that got hammered in my head was um, don't do a band-aid. Don't get don't engineer 10 dB a headroom in the box because of peaks. Get rid of the peaks. Yeah. Get rid of the overload. And that's what he did in all of, I've got his personal notes which saved us on the 610, thankfully. Um, he, You don't want to get into a situation where you've got to create all these stopgap measures to make it work. That's why if you look at our gear, there's very few revisions, very few. In fact, the 101 still, basically the same circuit as 64. He went from tubes to transistors in 18 months, and it was the 101. I mean, that's pretty genius. And the 601 basically is the same card from 69. You have our competitors, 10 or 15, 20 versions, as they found problems. He'd already anticipated those problems. So that's the big takeaways. You know, you eliminate the cause, don't minimize the effect. Yeah, I think that's good advice in the studio, too. A lot of times we use the term, get it right at the source. Right. You know, right. Sure and you got and, it and right the mic there. pre is the front end. That is everything. That's your whole recording. You can't fix it. You can band-aid the hell out of it, but you're never going to fix it. And... You'll never have the impact you would have had if you have good dynamic range. Yeah, and low distortion. You know, just a reminder that we, uh, the mic and the instrument is probably creating something that you want to hold on to. You know, and we make the mistake of losing that on the way into whatever we're recording. A lot of times. Yeah, go back and listen to those early Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, those guitar riffs and this keyboard and Lucky Man. Listen to the low end on those recordings. Unbelievably clean, full harmonic, you know, you listen to those recordings and listen to what they're producing now. Very thin, shallow. Just so happens we talk a lot about it getting the low end right on records. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> All right, so um, uh, here's one. I'm going to condense a few, but um, I imagine that building all this gear, uh, running a business, keeping track of a lot of parts and all that kind of stuff is requires a lot. What advice do you have for the rock stars? Just about, you know, staying organized, keeping your shit together. You know, I'm not a good guy to ask that question because right, I tend enough. not to be that guy. But Sometimes that's good advice. It's <laughs> yeah. like, hey, the guy who's doing the thing that really blows I'll your way. I'll tell you what we've, done wrong. what we've done wrong is is uh, um, is you, you've got to have a system. And not, not and again, it goes back to a dilly adage. You know, you couldn't create paper. When he took over the Minuteman missile program, one of the edicts was he had to get a, a functioning missile that could launch in less than 60 seconds. And his first edict was we to get this all done on time and make it we can't generate paper. Well, now it'd be your database. Um, what we're working through right now is a, our ability through a database to manage all the parts. Where before we were hand counting and, and you ought to see the book the piles of paper I've got from the old Spectra. Right. Where, where they were trying to keep and they tracked everything without generating paper. But it's just one of those things that uh, you don't want to make it a job or create work that's not there, but you still want to have the ability to retrieve. Yep. You know, and um, that's the biggest issue we got into. And then we're finally now 
getting to the point where we know where everything is and we're not getting into huge back order situations because we missed something. Yeah. Before it was when they got to the last box that I heard about it. Oh, we're out of transformers. We're out of input transformers. Yeah. I'm going. There you go, Rockstars. For your studios, <laughs> embrace the system and uh, don't run out of stuff before you need it. You know. Well, yeah, no, and have, and redu- you know, have spares. You know, that's yeah. the other thing. Is that's the other thing I can only point out is. If it's going to fail, it will fail. In fact, I always say that to customers. I'm always talking about what are we going to do when it breaks, which kind of at first is unnerving to them. I say, well, no, I've got to have that in my brain because I said it will, it can or maybe will happen. We don't have a high failure rate, but you've still got to have everything in place to when it does happen, you can respond. Yeah, absolutely. And the guy can be running the next day. You know, it's not one of those things, well, three months will get you apart. Well, that's the engineer's skill set. So when we're making records, um, you know, one of the things that you learn is that like, if something always goes wrong. Something always right. doesn't do what you expected it to. And the question is, um, you know, what are you going to do about it in the moment? You know, and the biggest thing prepared. I've seen in studios, and again, I'm not trying to judge anybody, but it's cables. The people spend the money on good cables, yeah, and connectors, it. and and spend money on a guy who knows how to solder. Right on. Well, you know, because that's that seems to be patch bays and cables get us more than anything when we go into a demo. It just seems like that's the common. Issue. Well, you got to check out Wireworld. Yeah, David Sauce. He's making some really nice. Oh no, he's cables. I already know who David is. He's, yeah, he's excellent. Oh no, David's he's at a different plane than most people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But if you want to capture a sound on the way in, too. No, he's great. Uh, um, all right. So this last question is hypothetical. Uh, we're going to take the way back machine, and you're going to go back in time and find young Bill, who's um, staring up at the cough, uh, the the chalkboard. And um, drinking coffee, and you know, maybe your advice is don't don't smoke Marble One Hundreds. But if you could go back and give yourself one bit of advice and say, "Listen, Bill, you want to be a rock star of the studio yourself one day." What advice would you give? Well, he and I used to argue about this continually. It's not an advice; it was a common. He a if the guy didn't understand what he was buying, we couldn't sell it to him. Okay, so if it was an if it was an electrical engineer that read the papers and understood it. He's fine. If I got a phone call from a, a musician who had a good feeling about our gear, I remember a, a show at AES where he gave very minimal time to Supertramp. They were a big user of our stuff. Um, and I'm over there going, you know, these guys are the guys that are you know, writing the checks. It, it was a tough call. The other thing was, is we weren't allowed to share any information at all. And not that we were giving away any trade secrets, it was just a policy from his background in the military. You know, he was above a top secret level classification. He was SCI. And I said, well, we got to at least tell them the do's and don'ts. So constant issues with that. Couldn't tell them anything. Because he thought people were going to figure it out. Now that I read what he did and how he did it, there's no way in hell they were going to figure out what he was doing. No, no way. You know, and he was constantly worried that someone was going to figure out. He figured there were people on his plane. There weren't. Um, and then again, it was it was standards. He uh, he was unbending. He would just not. Um, and that's partly why the gear's so good. If it wasn't going to be the best, he wasn't going to build it. But sometimes you can create some uh, obstructions when you do that because of uh, just the nature of the world. And so made it right tough. On. Right on. Well, thank you for explaining to us. It's been really. Uh, educational, very cool. And it's, it's you know, my takeaway is to see how amazing it is that making records uh, can be rocket science. You know? Oh, sure. <laughs> Absolutely. 
So, um, Bill, thanks so much for being on the podcast with us. Total pleasure hanging out with you. Let the Rockstars know how they can find you online. Where should they go look? Yeah, and you, check can, it out? you can email me at bill at spectra1964.com. And uh, I do still believe in the phone. I will talk to you on the phone. It's, I'm not, I'll email, but boy, it gets done quicker if we can talk. So if you've bought our gear and have any issues you're thinking about buying the gear, uh, send me an email first, and then we'll we'll arrange a time where I can talk to you. I'm also starting to get more and more into Skype, you know, where I can do remote sessions and stuff. Uh, spend a few minutes, but these conversations won't go more than ten or fifteen minutes. They're not, a, you know, you don't have to give me a day. Right, right, right. Yeah, it's just it's just we can cover it quickly. What I find is sometimes the less technical people have an easier time understanding what I'm doing than the people who've been doing it for fifty years. Because yeah. there's a lot of contradictions to what they know or what they thought, or so sometimes the beginner's easier to deal with than the, the experienced. Well, just listen to one rock stars. That, that was my experience here in the STX 100. I was like, that sounds great. Yeah. Um, and spectra1964.com. The new website's looking really nice, yeah. by the way. We got very, a, very, we got a good crew working on that. Rock stars, you can go there and check it out and uh, see articles from Chad Blake, from Matt Rossbang. Yeah, and we're gonna and and we've got. Like you know, again, different direction I was thinking, but I think better now that I can see what they're doing. Uh, we're going to start doing more expanded blogs. So it's not just a pitch. It's going to actually give you the why and wherefore. Right. So the blogs, you know, will actually have some interaction there and you'll act and you'll be able to see some things we're doing a little bit differently. And um, any comments you want to make, uh, I appreciate them. Any ideas. And then again, back to the, uh, any issues with, Anything we do, just just get a hold of me. Very cool. Well, again, Bill, we applaud you for taking on the the um, torch of capturing this massive quantity of history of music being recorded in the records that we love, and helping to distill that all down into something that continues. And that goes for you know I said it earlier. Anybody who has any history or anybody who has any information that'll help us validate some of these uh, these recordings because they're probably you're probably heard about. 20% of what we know today. But again, if we can get validation, that'd help us a lot. Right on. Right. Well, Bill, thanks for being on the show, man. Thank you. Appreciate All right, dude, we'll see you around the studio. Can't wait to get a tour of the factory sometime. Absolutely. Cheers. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to Recording Studio Rockstars. If you enjoyed the show and want to help make it better, then please share this episode with your friends on social media and leave a rating and review on iTunes to help the podcast reach more rock stars like yourself. You can click directly over to iTunes or go to rsrockstars.com review for an easy explanation. And remember to hit the subscribe button to keep up with weekly episodes. And if you're ready to make your best record ever now, then head over to Recording Studio Rockstars Academy, where you can start with my free course at mixmasterbundle.com and if you want more free content from recording studio rockstars all you have to do is go to rsrockstars.com email again that's rsrockstars.com email to enter your name and email and i'll keep you in the loop with articles videos podcast updates and even free gear giveaways for your studio just look for the link in the show notes below thanks so much for listening and thanks for being a rockstar i'm lid shaw and this is recording studio rockstars now go make Make great music. 
Thanks so much for listening to this episode, Rockstars. I also want to give a big thank you to our sponsors who help make this episode possible. OWC, Whisperoom, Eventide Audio, Spectra 1964, and Roswell Pro Audio. You'll find links to all these wonderful sponsors in our show notes. These are all things that I highly recommend you check out for your studio. They're going to help you make your best record ever. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you guys in the next episode. Cheers.